0: Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to the podcast with Sean Atwood
1: and myself, Andy Sledge. And there you have it, folks. Today, we've got Andy Sledge. Crazy stories. I don't know where to begin. From being a doorman, we've got numerous, hundreds of fight stories from being a doorman. He's got The Voice from MMA. He's got two podcasts. An MMA podcast, Oil Check, and he's recently launched Alfita Zane. Alfita Zane again. Alfita Zane again. Yeah. Now, when we tell these stories, we like there to be an important message for people who are perhaps going through addiction issues. We get messages constantly saying, you know, I watch this podcast with Wildman, I watch this podcast with Brian Cockle, whatever. And it really like, Helped me when I was feeling like killing myself just to see that people can go through that level of darkness and Emerge on the other side. So not only is it going to be Just numerous hard-hitting stories from Andy's life his battle with addiction his work in the MMA industry stories from overseas But we're hoping that this is going to resonate with people out there who are going through things right now, through things right now. Maybe you're just depressed during lockdown. Maybe you do have addiction or alcohol issues. <laughs> All right, thanks so much for coming on then, Andy. Yeah, yeah, I'm super happy to be here. <laughs> so we like to start with a really hard-hitting story, and something happened in Twickenham with you, I believe. That was right, yeah. So um, so I used, I used to be a doorman.
0: Um, I started doing the doors when I was 20, and this particular incident happened, I think I was about, it was before my kid was born. So about 25, something like that. So I'd been doing the, been doing the job for a, a decent number of years by this point. I was obviously fairly confident in my ability and I'd been through the wars a bit and um, tweaking them. Itself is a really nice place, right? You got the rugby there. You know that. You, you know you. You walk down the High Street on a Saturday morning. It's all coffee shops and yummy mummies and whatever.
1: Nice Thai restaurants. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. you
0: go back there on a Saturday night, and you've got all the gangs from like Hounslow and Feltham and Witten, and they all come into Twickenham to go at the pubs and stab each other, right? <sighs> and I mean, it is. It's pretty hardcore down there, and. Um, you know, I, I'd done a lot of work in like some of the traveler bars in Slough and, and places like that. So, you know, I'd uh, and and clubs in in Walkingham full of travelers and squaddies and stuff like that. So, you know, I'd seen some pretty hardcore things and I was like, ah, well, you know, tweaking them out. How, how bad can that be? And, uh, and then we find out. So we've been working there for, uh, you know, I've been working there for a few, maybe two, three months, something like that. And, you know, you get to know who the local scroats are and, and who the local scumbags are and who you're not allowed, who's not allowed in, who's on pub Watch and whatever. And so it was me, the the, the team was that night, it was a four-person four, four person team. Me ex-missus, my kid's mother, Ashley, she was the head door person, right? It's this little five-foot absolute maniac she is, right? <laughs> and, um, sounds like
1: Wild Woman. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a bit like that, yeah, yeah.
0: And um And so she was head door person and there was me, there was a lad called David who was a professional boxer, real hard lad. And this fella who I can't remember his name now, but we used to call him Pugwash. Because he looked like Captain Pugwash. <laughs> and um he was a bit of a he was a bit of a shirt filler, right? Nothing too special. And so it's a Friday night or it's a Saturday night, one of the two. It's busy, you've got a queue of people outside. And me and David are on the door, and Ashley and Pugwash Pugwash are inside somewhere. And obviously, so we're stopping people at the door, searching them. And then allowing them in, and you know it's it, like it's one in one out, you've got to try and but you've got to try and do this as quick as possible, so you know someone comes to the door, you've got a very, very short window to make an assessment, about whether you're going to let that person in the in the pub or not what's the criteria? Like, are they pissed? Are they on drugs? You know, do you know? Are they, you know, do they look familiar? Have you thrown them out before? You know, da, da, da you know, and it's, are they dressed correctly? You know, whatever. You know, there's there's a million and one different things running through your head. So this guy's walked to the door. He's an a- Asian matey, and he's got these big tattoos up his neck, right? You know, I've got a lot of tattoos myself. My best mate's a tattooist. You know, I'm quite used to that kind of thing, and. Anyway, so we've stopped this guy at the door. Me and David have looked at each other and we've nodded and he's walked through. And then just as he's crossed the threshold of the door, there was just something in his eye. And me and David just went, we've made a mistake there. We Uh-oh. shouldn't have let him in. And um, it was fairly late on in the evening. And um, and we're just like, I'll be all right. It'll be all right. So anyway, you know, he's whatever, it's gone. You know, with his, an hour later, you know, hour and a half later, it's kicking out time. And... So um, again, um, I'm stood at the front door, and this guy's left the pub, and there's obviously groups congregating outside the pub, and and your job at that point is to try and move them off from in front of the pub, um, you know to you know get them away from the res, you know keep them quiet, get them away, you know no disturbances, etc. And there's a there's a scuffles kicked off, right, and so I'm stood there, and Ashley stood there. I've got me back to the door. And I've seen this guy and he's pulled his hand back and he started going like that. And what I initially thought was a punch. I thought he was punching this guy in the stomach. So me and Ashley have both stepped forward to intervene in this fight. And as he's pulled his hand back, the final time he's got a massive knife in his hand and he's been plunging this geezer with it like that, right? And so she's running forward. I've picked her up by the scruff of the neck like that and thrown her back in the pub like that. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like getting a fucking bar like that, right? And so I've stepped, and by the time, obviously, I've got rid of her and I've turned round, the guy with the knife's run off. And so I've turned around and said, are you all right? I said, Giza's been stabbed. Giza's been stabbed. I said, call 999-da-da-da-da-da. So I've rushed forward, and his mates have picked him up and started walking off down the street with him. And they're going, oh, we're going to take him to the shop. I went, he's just been stabbed. And they're like, no, 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 because there was no blood. There was, there was like, literally there was just, you couldn't really tell. What did they mean take him to the shop? Well, I don't know. Like this, they were all drunk. It was two o'clock in the morning. They were going to go and get a kebab or, you know, whatever. I don't (sighs) know. So I'm walking off down the street going, leave him alone. He's, he's, there's something wrong. And they're going, no, no, he's, he's, he's our mate. He's fine. He's fine. And it got to the point where I actually had to basically slap one of his mates to get him to leave him alone so I could bring the geezer back in the boozer, right? So I'm over the road from the pub. I've put his mate up against the wall. I've gone, leave him alone. And I've given him a slap. And I've picked the guy up and I've dragged him back into the pub, put him on the floor of the pub. And by now, the kid's like totally unconscious, right? And I've lifted up his shirt. And there's like, there's, like I said, the, there was no blood, right? But there was a tiny, like a little, maybe it's an inch wide wound on his stomach. And... I've heard it before that if it's not bleeding on the outside, it's bleeding on the inside, yeah? And so I've taken my shirt off, put it on as a compression bandage. I've started, like, so I've administered the as first aid as best as I could. And obviously, by this point, there's, you know, there's ambulances are turning up, there's police are turning up, there's people are running around, like, you know, the the, the members of the general public are losing their mind. Like, the bar staff are shitting themselves. They've never, you know, they're like, oh! they don't know what's happening and um, and it's just absolute chaos and this keys has just turning white on the floor like as I'm holding it so anyway obviously the paramedics have arrived and then for some reason one of his mates is in the pub and his mates tried to pull me off him so then I'm going to stood up and fight his mates to (sighs) administer the the first aid and anyway so eventually the police arrived the paramedics arrived and sort of they sort of took control and da, da 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 and then they, you know, whisked him off and we had a drink, and, and that was the end of the night. And um, so we've just gone home as usual. Obviously, we've given our details to the police and we've just gone home. So by the time we got home, it was like three in the morning, crashed out, seven o'clock in the morning, There's a knock at the door and me and her are in bed and we're like, who's knocking on the door? It's seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. Open the door and there's two CID stood there and they're like, we need to talk to you now. And I'm like, what do you mean, man? And they're like, it's, it's murder. Like, As far as we're concerned, so what had happened is they'd taken him to the hospital. Four hours later, when they're knocking on the door, the kid was still on the operating table. So the kid was on the operating table for eight hours, and he had 13 units of blood pumped into him to keep him alive, right? And um, and so when they knocked on the door, oh, right, so, right, so, Sorry. I've skipped a bit. I'm just going to put your push microphone back. Oh, it on? yeah. So, skipped a bit. So, what happened was, is, yeah, so the kid, I've brought the kid back in the, I've brought the kid back in the, um, in, in the pub and administered the first aid, the police have arrived, there's all these people outside the pub, like, all milling around and wanting to know what was going on and stuff like that, and, the, and Pugwash was stood at the front door, and the police have gone to Pugwash, they have gone, would you recognise the man that did it? And he's looked around and gone, aye, it's him. And the geezer had come back and was come st- back and was stood watching what was happening. Yeah. What? Pugwash was I? was him. Matey with the tattoos on his neck, it was him. So what he'd done is he'd gone away and he'd ditched the knife down the drain. Yeah. And he'd come back and he was stood outside the boozer. Bloody hell. So, like I say, so they arrested him, obviously. What oh, um, the fucker? Well, as it turns out. But, so... They, like I say, they've knocked on the door. They've come in at seven o'clock in the morning. They've started, they've split me and her up, put her in one room, me in another room. And they're like detailed statements tell me exactly what happened and how it happened. This is a murder inquiry. Even though the geezer was still alive because the the chances of them surviving the, op, like the, 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 the medical procedure was 50-50. They were thinking, well, if he dies, we've got to treat it like a murder inquiry. So done all the statements, etc. You know, luckily, Touchwood, the guys pulled through. And, um, wow. and, um, and he survived. Holy shit. So next week, um, we got a card off his mother saying, thanks very much for saving the kid's life, which
1: was very nice. Could have been dragged off to the kebab house and, and died.
0: And, um, anyway, so about a month later, we were required to go to Brixton police station and perform in an identity parade. And so me and her, we got the train to uh, 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 South London. Uh, like, I think we got off a, By the time we got the train to Clapham and we were going to get on the tube, um, we got off the train at Clapham and the phone rang and it was a cop and he went, don't worry, you can turn around and go home. He's gone guilty. So obviously beforehand, he was like, not guilty, not guilty. So they needed the ID parade. And then after he'd gone guilty, they said, oh, he's done it before. So no. he'd, he'd, he'd already spent time in a psychiatric unit for stabbing someone in the genitals and then obviously he'd been let out and uh, and then he's gone and jucked up this fella in outside the boozer. And like I say, this was like, you know, you, you know it's all always the, the, the woulda, shoulda, coulda kind of thing and the fact that when he crossed the threshold of that door, me and David just went, oh, we shouldn't have let him in. Now, if we'd have tried to turn him away, what would have happened? Would he have just went away peacefully? Would he have tried to stab us? You know, all of these ifs, ands, buts, and maybes. But, you know, it, what happened happened. And, um, and yeah, so they basically, I think they sh- locked the door and threw away
1: the key on this kid. So he was mentally ill then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, yeah. a, he, he didn't have a beef with the guy. It just was spontaneous. No, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, that's what you'll, that's the thing when you're working on the door. 99% of the beef that you have is just someone's bumped into someone and spilled someone's pint. And the lucky thing about it is, is working as a doorman, they're not 99% of the time, they're not trying to hit you. They're trying to hit somebody else. So when you jump in to try and stop it, you know the the granted you're getting involved in a dangerous confrontational situation, but the danger is not really directed at you a lot of the time. So it's not th- it's not the most dangerous job in the world most of the time. But there are certain occasions where it can be, and where you know it's when people say, "I'm going to come back and get you,"
1: and they actually do. But we'll get to that. So as this guy was entering then, as he passed you you had this intuitive feeling about him. Was it his body language? Was it his eyes? Was it?
0: Yeah, it was his eyes. There was just, it was every, like I say, he wasn't that big. You know, I mean, he was like, I mean, I'm six foot three, you know, I'm a big lad and and he was five, eight, maybe five, seven, five, eight. He wasn't that big. And um, yeah, he just, he like this weird, like I say, a bit of a wild look in his eyes and he was, you know, like not like you know what you know what like if you're walking in the pub like if you're walking in the pub with your mate, if it was me and you would be talking to each other. Or if you you were you meeting your mate inside, you'd be waving at your mate and say, Oh, I'll be in there in a second. This guy just walked in and it was like there was not there was no recognition of anyone and we're like that, there's just something not right there, mate. And unfortunately, you know, that that bit of a gut instinct that we didn't react to quick enough turned out to be a hundred percent correct.
1: So in your entire life then whose eyes were the most dangerous you've ever seen
0: (laughs) um mark potter so um uh, caveat that mark's like one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet
1: this is an mma fighter. yeah he's
0: an mma fighter and mark's really really nice guy and does a lot of work for charity and stuff like that and um he's a very very well-known hard man from the east end of london like essex way so was a um former British t- British champion level heavyweight boxer and he was the guy that fought um I think it was Danny Williams fought for the British title and Danny Williams dislocated his shoulder in the bout and continued to fight the bout with one arm and what ended you know? up winning the winning the beaten mark potter with only one arm. I mean that's no you know that's that doesn't reflect on Mark's level of you know hardness because he is a very very scary looking individual. But like I say, nice lad. And like I said, you know, does a lot of charity work, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, when he gets it, when he steps through the ropes or he steps in the cage, he is the last person that you ever, ever want to be on the other side of. So I didn't really know who he was. And and obviously I was refereeing at the Troxy, And um, he was fighting a, a mate of mine. So um, a guy called Ian Hawkins, who used to call himself the monster. And he was like, um, he was about six, seven, six, eight. And I'm sure he might not be watching this, but he will admit he's not the best looking fella in the world. You know, bit like sloth off the Goonies. He's got a face like a focus mitt, yeah? And, um, but again, you know, absolute diamond guy. I used to train down my gym. I've sparred with him and that. I mean, when I say I've sparred with him, you know, he's allowed me to hit him in and without hitting me back and killing me. Um, and um, <laughs> so I've, I've refereed Ian before. Um, you know I've trained with Ian I know him he lives near me he's from Bracknell um, so you know mates and he's the first one to enter the cage you know so the, I'm refereeing um, I think it was Brett was emceeing and he's like you know Ian Hawkins and then his music's playing and it's like his music's that what's that coming over the hill is it a monster because <laughs> his na- nickname's the monster so <laughs> Ian Hawkins is walking down and is it a monster is it and I'm like oh know, like that <laughs> And then um, and then all the fucking lights have just gone out, right? And it's just like the music's just like and I'm like, what the, what's going on here? And I've looked up and they've gone like Mark, the great white shark, potter. And this dude's just walking towards the cage and I've just looked up and I've just gone, Holy shit. Like dead eyes, like like a great white shark, like totally black dead eyes. And he's like, you know, like probably six foot tall. About 17 stone of solid muscle, not an ounce of fat on him, shaved dead, really dark, like menacing looking eyes like that. And he's walked into the kids like that. And I've just looked at my mate Ian and I've looked at this fella and it's the only time I've ever prejudged a fight. You know, because I've refereed 1,500, 2,000 MMA fights and I've seen people who look like nothing beat up the bronze Adonis, Yeah. And you can never judge a book by its cover. However, on this occasion, I felt it was necessary. <laughs> and um, and I've looked at Mark Potter and I've looked at my mate Ian and I've just gone, oh, he's in some trouble. He's in some serious trouble here. And um, so the fight starts and, you know, they, so they both come out and immediately, immediately you can just see there's a major class difference between the two. And like I say, you know, Ian Hawkins was just a big lump brawler, you know, six, seven, 1920 stone, you know, you know, doorman, you know, trained, a, trained a bit and could take a beating more than any man I've ever seen. He was like, <laughs> we used to joke. He was like Homer Simpson. You know, that episode of the Simpsons where Homer becomes a boxer and he, <laughs> what he does is he lets the other guy hit him until he gets tired and then he knocks him out. Yeah. That was Ian Hawkins. He would just let the guy tee off on him until he got knackered. But on this occasion, that tactic didn't work. And um, so straight away, Mark Potter's got him up against the side of the fence and he's unloading with some vicious, vicious punches. And I'm like, whoa. And um, anyway, so he reaches down, he catches him with a body shot and you can just see him cripple. And I'm jumping in to stop the fight. Yeah. So I'm, I'm moving forward. I'm like, <gasps> Like that. And as I've done that, Ian Hawkins has hit the floor and mark potter has just soccer kicked him straight in the face oh. which is obviously against the the rules of uh, of, of mixed martial arts and so i've had to jump in front of mark potter like in full kill mode and um, and and break up this fight and i mean obviously at the time it was like i was moving forward and 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 it was only sort of afterwards i was like holy shit what did i just do there and um and then obviously I've then like and bearing in mind he's probably sold five hundred tickets of an you know that we're in the East End of London. He's a an like an East End Essex face. And so a lot of the people that he's sold tickets to are probably some pretty tasty individuals and they're probably all betting on the fight. And I've just stepped in and disqualified him. Yeah. So like so straight away one of the other referees come running in, he went, um, Sledge, like, you know, and I'm like, look, man, what do you want me to do? I said, he broke the rules, He's dis- he can't continue, he's disqualified. He went, well, he went, but technically, you'd already stopped the fight, hadn't you? I went, well, if that's the case, what he did is he attacked someone under the care of the referee, and therefore he's disqualified. I said, so whichever way you look at it, he's disqualified. And, um, and yeah, and I think I upset a lot of people um, with that decision, but it was the right thing to do, you know, you look, the bottom line is you, you can't, You can't prostitute your integrity as a referee just because there's some dodgy characters are having a bet on the fight. You know what I mean? And um, but yeah, like I say, just a real, real, you know, like having never met the guy. The first time I saw him was like I say, there was dead eyes, man, and that was
1: a very. He's a very cuts a very intimidating figure. Wow, Andy, this is going to be a good one. We're only just getting started, and almost um, half an hour's gone like that. (laughs) 20 minutes, 25 minutes, people who watch the podcast who, you know, we're inundated with people who want to come on. You, you've got great stories, many of you, but take lessons here on how to tell a story. This is mind-blowing. I'm on the edge of my seat here. Where's your accent from, Andy? So, um,
0: I'm originally a Geordie. Well, okay, so, yeah, I'm a Geordie uh, to all intents and purposes. I was actually born in a place called Annick. Which is about thirty miles north of Newcastle. Now, the annex quite famous modern day these days because it is where they filmed the Harry Potter films. Great. So, um, there's a the annex castle was used as the backdrop for Hogwarts. Ooh. So, like when I was a kid, when I was born there, annex was just some crappy little Northumbrian town. Yeah, nobody had ever heard of it. And like I say, now it's a mecca for Harry Potter fans. Wow. Um. So. I um so I was born in Annick um and um uh from a, a you know what today would just be a normal situation but you know 40 years ago could potentially be looked at as a dysfunctional family so me uh, me, me father was never around and uh, my mother was a school teacher so worked a lot um, and she worked in like at the time she was working in Newcastle and we and so she would get up in the morning she would take me and me sister to me, to me granny's and then she would go to work and then, you know, we'd be my granny's and then we'd go to school or whatever. So, but I was just, I was always one of them kids that I just never felt like I belonged anywhere. You know what I mean? I always felt like slightly out of place. Um, I was always judging my insides by other people's outsides. You know, so I, it was, I remember, you know, it was when I, when I first went to school um, so I was I was this little dysfunctional kid from a dysfunctional family. And, um, you know, the way that I felt isn't necessarily the way that the world was. My problem is that I interpret things maybe the wrong way. You know, so um, I sometimes felt like I was, um, you know, I used to have fantasies about, you know, I've been adopted. I don't belong here. Or oh, I used to have fantasies about I'm an alien. The aliens are going to come back and get me one day. I don't belong on this planet. And so from being this little dysfunctional kid, my earliest memories were you know, restlessness, irritability, discontentedness, fear. There was a lot of fear involved in my life. I was, ter- I was terrified of everything. And, um, and then I was then put into some situations where I was actually very, very different to the people around me. So my mother, being a school teacher, she was very much about let's get the best education. So in Annick, at the time, the best school for you know five-year-old kids in the local area happened to be the local Catholic school. So I was sent to the local Catholic school as a non-Catholic, right? So I've I'm five years old, I've got no dad, right? Which I just think's normal, and I'm not a Catholic, never been to church in my life. And my mother goes, right, there you go. Go to a Catholic school where everyone's got a dad. And it was like, you might have just put a neon sign above my head going, eh, different, and, and everyone different. was Catholic. Yeah, everyone was Catholic. Everyone had a dad. And and I was the kid who was the
1: non-Catholic who didn't have a dad. And were you one of the littlest in your year group as well back then? Well,
0: t- to be honest, I can't really, not really. I suppose I've, I've never been a small kid, but I did grow into myself like in my later teenage years. Um, but it was, and again, it was just all fear. You know, my entire life was governed by fear from a very, very early age. And then, so I was at that school for like two years and, um, and I remember like, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful towards anyone that's, that, that's religious at all, right? But I'm a total non-religious person. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a confirmed atheist. And I remember when I became a confirmed atheist and I was about five years old. And, um, and I've always been a very, log- my brain's very logical. I've always been a very logical person from a very, very early age. And I remember that I was at this Catholic school and the, the nuns have come in and they're taking all the kids to get practiced for their confirmation. And, um, and, the, and, and the nun went, we're gonna go to church. And I'm like, oh, why we're going to church? And she went, Andrew, we're gonna go and see God. And I'm like, well, that sounds brilliant. You know, I'm a 5 year old kid I've been told I'm going to go and see God. I'm like that sounds awesome. <laughs> and so we've gone and we've done all the thing and we've come back. And um and and I and I went I went you know sister whatever I went you told me I was going to go and see God. I never saw God. Where was God? And she went she looked me in the eye and she went Andrew God was everywhere. And in my mind I remember going you're full of shit love. You yeah, know like that's Oh Yeah, don't tell that to me. And, you know, so I became very, very cynical from a very, very early age. And I remember being lied to by teachers over things like, I hated drinking water and I wanted orange juice all the time because I used to get orange juice at home and they were like, you can have tapaline. That's water. That's a different word for water. And I'm like, you're lying to me. What are you doing? And so just when, whenever, and then like my sister revealed to me at a very early age that Santa Claus didn't exist. Yeah, like, like so when I was four, my sister took us upstairs in my mother's bedroom, opened the cupboard, showed me the Christmas <laughs> presents and went, Santa doesn't exist. And like, you know, so four five years old, I've got adults lying to me and I'm noticing and I just became, I just disbelieved everything. And I thought, well, if you can do it, I can do it. And I just became a very, very devious person from a very, very early age. And I found comfort in being deceitful, you know. And then so, age seven, we moved from Annick to Newcastle, right? So I was this little country bumpkin kid, right? Hardly, you know, wouldn't say boo to a goose, full of fear, dysfunctional family, da-da-da-da-da. And then I've been taken to this, I, was, I moved to a place called Kenton, which is in northwest Newcastle. And by no means is it the worst area of the city. By no means is it the best area of the city middle of the road, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a predominantly council area. Yeah. And so I'm this little country bumpkin kid and I got dropped into this junior school in the middle of this council estate where everybody knew each other. And I, I was this, this outsider again. And just, and it, and it, and it just, it, you know, it just my self-confidence and the fear and just, it all ruined me. And then I was there and, and then it was there that I committed my first fraudulent act. So later on in life, that became quite a prevalent thing with me. Um, so I, like, basically, uh, you know, my mother was a school teacher. We weren't, you know, we by no means, you know, uh, a wealthy family, and she had, you know, my mother, uh, you know, bless her, right? You know, we never wanted for anything, right? But there are things that I, as a boy, put. Um, you know, put a lot of, um, you know, put a lot of priorities in that she, as a as a female, didn't, right? One of these was Panini football stickers. Now, when you're seven, eight years old and you're the only boy in the class that doesn't have a Panini football sticker <laughs> album and you're the kid that's the outsider, that's, you know, that's come in from the country town and da 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 and just that kind of thing destroyed my self-confidence. Yeah, destroyed it, you know, and 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 so what I did is, I very very quickly worked out a way where I to get what I wanted, and the way to do it was to lie and cheat and steal, and um and so there was this was back in the day when you used to have to take your dinner money and give your dinner money to the dinner lady, and then go and have your dinner, and that was used to. So every day when you're leaving the house in the morning, your mother would give you the fifty pence or the sixty pence or whatever it was, and that was for your school dinner, and. I very, very quickly cottoned on that the dinner lady who stood at the door taking the money was a, a gossiping bitch, right? And would regularly turn around and not do her job properly. So I would stand and wait for her to turn around and talk to her mate and I would just <laughs> walk in the dinner hall and eat me dinner and not pay for it. And then I would take that money and I would go and spend it on football stickers, yeah? <laughs> Seven years old, Ooh. yeah? Devious, right? And and then so i was there for two years i moved to another school um which again i've gone to this other school i'm the the outsider i'm the you know the kid like everyone knew each other I, you know just and again it's you know different 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 and then i was there for two years and then um, my mother put me forward for the exam for like the the local posh private school Um, which would have been called the 11 plus, but it was just the entrance exam. Anyway, so I got a very, very good result in the entrance exam for this school. And um, I was offered a... I mean, the word scholarship's probably a little bit bit far-fetched, but basically I was offered to go to this posh private school without me mother paying the fees because we were a low-income family. And so I've then gone from, uh, you know, I've then gone to this posh private school where everyone's rich and I'm living in a council house. I was the only kid that lived in a council house. I'm wearing secondhand uniforms and, and all of this. And it just, you know, and and obviously I've gone from being the big fish in the little pond, like, because I was, you know, at these other schools, I was super smart. Like that that first school I went to in Newcastle, in the first year, there was four years above me. I was the smartest kid in the whole school. <laughs> Yeah. And there was four years above me. And then the next school, I was the smartest kid in the school, right? And then I've gone to this next school and I'm the dumbest kid in the school and the poorest. And it just, again, my self-confidence was ruined and, 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 and it was horrible. And, um, and so, you know, like I say, I've got no dad. I've got a mother who, you know, was fairly disciplinary with the back of her hand. And I've got an older sister that learned her behaviors from my mother so I've got these two, I'm living in a house with these two women that feel beating me is a regular disciplinary, you know, a process. And um, and so there was no men's stuff in the house. There was no male influence in the house. Weren't allowed to watch football. Weren't allowed to watch boxing. You know, weren't allowed to do this. Weren't allowed to do that. Weren't allowed to do the other. And it was all girl stuff, you know. So I know I can knit, I can sew, I can do crochet and all of that girl's crap, right? I know the words to every Doris Day movie going. <laughs> Essentially, I was brought up like a girl up until the age of about 11, right? And, um, and I just, I cr- like, I craved the male influence in my life. And then when my grandparents retired, they moved to uh, Whitley Bay, which is near Newcastle. And so I was about 10, something like that. And I've gone... So I used to go on a Saturday with my granddad to the social club, like the you know, the 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 it was called the Rafa Club, the Royal Air Force Association. So it was, you know, the social club where you had to have your membership
1: card to get I in. So my all dad that. met my mum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: so I mean, you know, and we're talking, this is the early eighties in the northeast of England, the social club, there was a sign above the bar that said no women allowed. And from someone that is hating the the female dominated environment I was in. To then go into this male dominated environment was like heaven to me. And so my granddad used to take us in, and, and I was a very, very talented pool player from a very, very early age. So, like 10, 11 years old, I could go into the pub, put my money on the pool table, and beat all the men at pool. So I was accepted as one of the lads. And, he, like, you know, I was the cheeky little kid that could play pool. And so, you know, and, and I used to stand there with my pool cue, and I would look around, and as such just men. And they're drinking and smoking and telling dirty jokes. And and it was just, and, and well I was accepted. And this was, I was just like, this is it. they like, I'm, I'm home, you know? And I loved it. I loved it more than anything. And if you would have come up to me when I was 10, 11, and said, what do you want to do in your life? I'd have been like, I want to be a member of the Rafa Club and I want to play pool and drink with the lads. That was it. That was me. <laughs> some of totally me ambition when I was 11. And, um, and so... You know, alcohol was a ve- played a very, very major part in my in in my family and and in, in, in the environment. It's the northeast of England, and and um and so you know the I just I I always you know and it was never frowned upon. You know, like if my granddad was having a drink and I said, "Can I have some?" He would give us a sip, and you know, you'd get a you know, you'd get a glass of sherry on New Year's Eve and, and what have you, and then um and I, and and because I. Because my self-confidence was low, I I was one of them kids that I always, and I had an older sister, I always wanted to be doing what the older kids were doing. You know, I always wanted to be thought of as older than I actually was because I just was unhappy. I was a very, very unhappy little boy, you know? And then, so the first time I ever was left alone with alcohol, I nearly killed myself. So it was like, I believe that I was born an alcoholic and an addict, right? Some people will disagree with that, whatever. This is my opinion and it's my life, right? What I'm saying is this thing was inside of me, right? And like I say, the in order for me to, it, like I say, those feelings of restlessness, irritability, discontentedness, and fear, I used to, like I say, you know, when I was a kid and I started lying and cheating and things like that, that, used to, that was a, a form of drug use f- for a child, yeah? And then... When I first put this drink inside of me, it was just like the fireworks had been let off. And so me and my mate were nicked a bottle of whiskey from his dad and we locked we locked ourselves in the in the in the loft and we drank this bottle of whiskey. And I mean, like obviously, I'm 12 years old, I drank half a bottle of whiskey. I've never been as ill in my life. And so I've got, I've managed to get home and I'm lying on the sofa. I've thrown up in the bucket and, we, you know, the the bile and, oh, uh, and my mother's come home. Obviously, I'm stinking of whiskey. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, ah. you know, I'm a 12-year-old kid and I've got alcoholic poisoning on the sofa. And um, anyway, so a couple of days later, it's all calmed down and, uh, you know, the hangover's gone and whatever. And I was allowed to go back out and I remember leaving the house and I was walking down the street towards my mate's house and I just had this feeling inside of me. I went, Come, we had to do that again. And that was it, mate. Twelve years old, I was off. Yeah? And like, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not I'm not saying that I was bang on the piss from that moment forward. You know, when you're a teenager, it becomes an opportunist thing. You know, Friday nights, we used to hang around the metro station and, you know, whatever. You know, you get your bottle of cider with your mate and whatever, right? And so that was it. And then very quickly, drugs started coming into it. So when I was about 13. I was one of them people that I was like, I always said, I'm never going to do this and then went and did it. Yeah, So I'd, obviously I'd got drunk for the first time and I'm like, well, I'm, I've, I've, everyone drinks. I'm never going to do drugs. Drugs are bad. You know, I'm from the Zamo, just say no era. You know, it was like, you know, drugs were bad. And, um, and then obviously me mate's like, oh, I've tried smoking a bit of puff. Do you want to try it? And I'm like, yeah, all right then. So I'd smoked a bit of puff, but then I was like, well, that's natural. I'm never going to do the chemical drugs. And then next thing, someone's giving you acid and then speed. And then you're doing the acid and the speed. And, you, you know, so you're like 14, 15 doing acid and speed. And you're like, well, I'm, yeah, but I'm never going to do E's. They're really bad. You can't do e's. And then obviously 16, someone gives you an E and you take it and you have the best night of your life. And you're like, ah, it's brilliant. And then you're like, well, I'm never going to do cocaine because that's addictive. And then like I tried cocaine a few times, but it was like the gear, the basically what I now know is the gear that I got was shit. Right. And it wasn't very tasty. Just didn't really do anything. And I was like, I paid 50 quid for that. Is that it? Like, you know, like, and me being the tight northerner, I'm like justifying the, you know, the cost to benefit ratio. And I just went, (laughs) you know, that's not it. And it was only when I was like 21, someone gave me a bit of like proper pure gear and it blew the hat clean. Like I took one line of this gear and I was like, that's the thing I've been waiting for all of my life. And I just, So... It sort of jumped ahead of it. And then and then again, you know, and so for 10 years, well, for nearly 10 years, I was a heavy cocaine user, alcohol, weed, cocaine. That was my, like, I'd smoke weed every day, I'd drink every day, and I'd do cocaine more or less every day. And um, and then and I used to look down upon people that did harder drugs. So I'm like, you know, you'd see people that were doing crack, and I'd be like, you dirty crackheads. They're scum, scum of the earth, horrible, disgusting. And so for 10 years, I'm sniffing. Like some days I'm sniffing an eighth of Coke a day, yeah? And I'm going, dirty crackheads. They're disgusting people. How dare they? This is before I knew about the mechanics of addiction. And then later on in life, basically the only reason I'd never taken crack was because nobody had ever offered it to me before. And the very first time I was in an environment where someone went, do you want to try this? And I was pissed and I'd had a few sniffs. I was like, there was no, there was, I never, like the word no just didn't enter my vocabulary. I was like, yes, of course I'll try it. And then once I'd done crack, when someone offered me heroin, I was like, well, oh, I'll try that as well. It was never really my thing, the heroin. Like I say, I've done crack a, a lot of times, but a, heroin's a, a couple of times. It just wasn't the thing. So so anyway, what I'm saying is that was my progression in into drugs. Yeah, And like I say, it started off very, very early. And then by the time I was seventeen, I, my first job was in a pub. Funny that, for an embryonic alcoholic, I get <laughs> I get a- attracted to a job in a pub. So I started working as a glass collector in um, the busiest pu- like one of the busiest student bars in Newcastle. It's on the quayside in Newcastle called Offshore Forty Four, and it was banging. It was brilliant. And it was just you know I'm seventeen years old, I'm in this wicked, cool environment, loads of hot chicks and whatever It's just you know it was brilliant and um and that was when I sort of first um got a got a little bit of a a little bit of a taste about being a doorman, so you know when I was seventeen in Newcastle, the doorman that used to work on the bars and clubs were some serious characters, and you know. You couldn't just go and apply for a job. This was like you, to, in order to get one of these jobs, you had to be a well-respected, tough man. You know, obviously, you know, you've done the stuff about like you know, um, Lee Duffy and all that. And he was, um, he was rumoured to be trying to have a, a fight with Viv Graham and stuff like that. You know, so when I was a kid, Viv Graham was, you know, the mythical hard man of the town. You know, and he, it was like you know, you'd add, as a child, I didn't know who he was, but I'd heard his name, and then obviously I started working, um started working and then I got to, you know, I got I got to know people that knew him. So um, there was two doormen on at the pub and they were both absolute man-mountain, real lovely, lovely guys, but just real salt of the earth, tough, hard men who were well-respected in the city. And um, one of them was called Kevin, God rest him, so he died recently, unfortunately. Um, and uh, and his partner Hassan and, and 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 I'm still friends with Hassan today on Facebook, and like I say, just a you know a, a normal nice guy, but just well well respected and and well odd, yeah. And and obviously I'm this little 17 year old kid walking around collecting glasses, and they sort of took me under the wing, didn't they? And then you know after 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 work they'd be like, oh, do you want to come out for a drink after work? And then, so I'd be going to these dodgy nightclubs in Newcastle at 17 years old, stood in between these two giants, like having a drink like that. There's, there's gangsters everywhere and all of this. And I'm like, oh, this is really funny. Like, you know, I was it was just this little kid, but it sort of, you know, gave me a little bit of a, a taste after that kind of lifestyle. Just on, as an aside, when did you first hear about Lee Duffy? I, I actually only heard about him recently through your podcast. I didn't know who he was. I'd heard of Brian Cockrell before. But again, you know, Middlesbrough to me was like a different world. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I the first time I ever went near Middlesbrough, I was, I was um, about twenty. A mate of mine used to DJ at the students' union and we used to go down there and pull all the students and that, but that was as much as um, that was as much as Middlesbrough as he ever Do you have any do you have any Viv Graham stories? No, no. Again, like I say, I mean I was I was a child when he I mean, I was I was a kid when he got murdered. So it was, um, like I say, it was I'd heard oh, th- as much as I knew about Viv Graham was just his name, and then obviously, I'm hanging around with these doormen occasionally, and they talk about him as a friend, and I'm like, well, that's a bit yeah, but you know, obviously people had heard the stories about there's a video on YouTube of him walking into a nightclub and weighing in all the doormen and stuff like that and and um, and I think one of the Sias is one of the Sias was with him. And like, I think one of the Ceres is telling the story and he's like, I've got six months for fighting and he got 18 months for watching the fight or something like, <laughs> it was like a, quite a funny story. But again, you know, this a friend of mine used to sell drugs for the Ceres and stuff like that. And, um, I, I was never involved. Yeah. Like when I was in Newcastle, you know, up until the age of 16, I'm going to this posh private school and I'm playing rugby at the weekends and I'm doing judo and I'm going to scouts and I'm, you know, And like I say, I'm just this embryonic, you know, alcoholic kid who gets drunk on a Friday night, hanging around the metro station. And then, you know, 17, I start working in the pub. And by the time I was 17 and a half, I was a a daily drinker. And all my life, like I say, my, you know, I've got friends who are quite serious criminals because, you know, they got involved in the same kind of thing I got involved in. But their goal was to make something of that environment i was i was far more interested in taking the drugs than I was selling the drugs yeah i just i i was i was all I was interested in was getting pissed, getting off me nut and pulling women that was that was you know from the from a, from the age of seventeen and but because I was a daily drinker you know when i I left school and I got a job and very soon the consequences of my drinking became prevalent in my life and it was you know, they say that, you know, alcoholics will generally tell you that the way that it starts out is it starts out as fun and then it's fun with some problems and then it's just more or less problems. And that was exactly, you know, and what I say to people is, you know, as I said to you before we started, mate, you know, I am no one special. I'm just an average dude, right? And, and my sponsor says that to me all the time. He's like, Andy, you're just an average alcoholic that's all you are you're nothing because you know the thing about alties is they've got this delusion of grandeur a lot of the time and you know you think you're special and different but you're not you know i'm just a normal dude and like i say i was i always had a job i always went to work you know i was a functioning alcoholic and a functioning addict but like i say the i always say to people you know i, ne- I didn't get in trouble every time i drank but every time i got in trouble it's because i'd been drinking and It's like rolling a dice, you know. When I was 19, 20, I could go out 50 times and I might get in trouble once. And then it was maybe get in trouble twice. And then it was, you know, maybe it's one in five. And then it's one in three. And then all of a sudden, you're just like your life becomes a. And then, and then obviously, you know, later when you're, you know, by the time you're later on and you and, 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 you know, you're, you know, you're. I was I used to think I was a bit of a del boy. I was always wheeling and dealing, you know, buying stolen property and selling it on and and I was, you know, I was I wasn't a drug dealer, but I would like if someone come in the pub and they wanted two grams of gear, I knew a geezer who like they were prepared to pay this much for it, and I knew a fella who I could get three grams for the same price. So I would take their money, go and get the three, keep one for myself and pass the two on to them. Yeah? I'm not a drug dealer. I'm just someone that manipulates a situation to get free gear out of it. Yeah. Whereas, like I said, that was I was satisfied doing that kind of thing, yeah. Whereas, like I say, there's mates of mine who weren't satisfied doing that kind of thing and took it to the extremes, and you know, you know, mo- most of them have been in prison for long periods of time. And I was never, like I say, fear. I was a very, very fearful kid, and I never really wanted to do that. So I always, I always went to work, and I was always functioning. And so one of the first consequences was that I did what well, I entered. What, my first, what they call a geographical. So, alcoholics and addicts generally tend to do a lot of geographical movements. So, my first geographical was from Newcastle down to here. Yeah, so down to Redden. And um, I basically, I got drunk at work, and the boss at work went, look, there's a new office opened in Redden. You can either get the sack or you can go down to Redden. And I was like, all right, I'll go down to Redden. Then. And um, at the time, my sister was running a nightclub in Maidenhead. So, I've got down here... Went to see me sister and I went, look, you know, I'm, I'm not really too happy with this job. And she went, well, look, why don't you come and work in the club for the summer? And then at the end of the summer, you can go back to Newcastle and you can decide what you want to do. So obviously I've started working in this nightclub in Maidenhead. Maidenhead's a small town. So, you know, I'm young, slim, full head of hair, you know, and, um, and, and, the, and the manager of the club's my sister. I'm like the new lad in town. So I've just proceeded to try and bang my way through every <laughs> chick in Maidenhead. Brilliant. And then, so I was working in this club. I was just getting pissed every day. I was just, and I was having a right and it was, it was fun. It was just fun, 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 fun. And, um, and yeah, and then, you know, from that point, like, so I went to my first AA meeting when I was 29. So that's like from the age of 19 to the age of 29. Right. So that was a 10 year period with which my life went from fun, 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 fun to holy shit. I need to go to an AA meeting. My life's a mess. So what happened in that time frame was a fairly cyclical behaviour. So what I talk about geographical. So what would happen is I would go to a new town and the first thing I would do would be to find the local crap hole boozer, right? So you know when you when you go somewhere and you say to someone, oh, what's a pub, nice pub to go to, they go, Don't go in that pub. Yeah? I'd be like, oh. Yeah, because if someone says don't go in that pub, it means it's full of drug dealers for a start. And you know, it's gonna be the kind of place where I feel comfortable.
1: It's like well, man, he'd always go to the dodgiest, like the bike. Exactly. Bars, you know, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And um and so when you when you go to A, there's a in the literature they give you, there's a there's a quiz. Basically it's like, are oh, you an alcoholic quiz, right? And one of the it's one of my my favorite question on the quiz is do you seek out an inferior environment to do your drinking? Guaranteed a hundred percent. Yeah? So, like, every time I go somewhere, I will find the dirtiest, scummiest boozer where I can go in. And, like, so what will happen is I'll go in. The first thing I'll be, I'll look up when the next Newcastle game's on the telly. And I'll be like, the landlord, all right, I've just moved in. I'm a Geordie lad. I want to watch the Newcastle game. Are you going to put it on the telly for us? And then you make pals with the landlord. And then, you know, you're in there and you're, you're the new cheeky Geordie lad in the bar. And then you get to know everyone. And then... You find out who the local drug dealer is and you start buying gear off him and then you start getting it on tick. And before long you've got a you've got a tab behind the bar, you've got a you got gear on tick from the local dealer, and then you're bouncing checks in the corner shop and, you know, all of these things that, you know, just went along with the addiction. And then what I would do is it would it was like spinning plates, right? It was like that. You know, and I would be robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, so I'd be buying gear off him, selling a bit, paying him off, you know, buying off the shoplifters, selling that, paying him off, and you know, and it just it was it was hard work, mate. You know, like being an alcoholic and an addict is a full time job, right? And when you've also got a full time job, that's like having two, and it's real hard. And and it, it it's generally you tend to find that your your full time job generally tends to suffer, right? Um, and so what would happen is I'd like I say I'd have all these plates spinning, and then you could see it coming. You know, I'm, I'm one of them people. I'm quite intuitive. And then literally just before it's about to go pop, right? So, you know, when you can't get any more gear on tick, when, the, when they won't give you another pint on, on the slate, when the, you know, when the corner shop dudes like got people looking for you because all the bounce checks you've done on them, you know, you, you owe him, you've done that, you've done that, you've done that, you know, you've rang in sick, too many days at work, you're about to get sacked at work. And what would happen is I'd just pack up all my stuff in a bag and just move town. And sometimes I'd move six miles down the road And sometimes I'd move to a different continent. You know what I mean? And, you know, so my geographicals went, you know, Redden, Basingstoke, Maidenhead, Slough, London, Slough. Then I did five years in Spain. I did a year in Southeast Asia. And, And every time I made one of these moves, in my head, I was always like, I'm going to something better. The reason I'm doing this is because there is something better on offer at this place. It wasn't the fact that, I was like, there was just a whirlwind of destruction in my wake. You know, it was like the Tasmanian devil just, you know, behind me was just absolute carnage and chaos. And, um, anyway, so that was it. And and so they talk about the decline, you know, how, how your life declines, um, you know, from, you know, being a good life to being at the point where you go to a, a, an EA or an NA meeting. Right. And, you know, when your life gets to the point where you think AA is a valuable option, you're pretty much in the shit. Nobody walks in the doors of an AA meeting or an NA meeting thinking, "Oh, my life's brilliant. You know, I've got a fantastic relationship with the woman I love. I've got a great job that pays me a fantastic salary. I've got, you know, I've got, uh, I've got assets and I've got money in the bank and everything. And uh, you know, my life's pretty cool. I think I'm going to go to an NA meeting tonight." Nah, mate. It's the last stop on the shit train. Yeah. And, you know, people go, like, people crawl in those meetings on their hands and knees. So, you know, how did I get from there to there? And it was just, it's a it's a weird mental position that you put yourself in. So, if you imagine, you know, when your life's good, it's 10 out of 10. And then what would happen is, you know, you'd be doing a bit of gear, you know, you you'd be drinking a lot and, you know... Eventually, something would happen. You'd, your girlfriend would dump you. You'd get sacked from a job or, you know, something major in your life would happen. And the quality of your life would go from a 10 down to a 9. And you'd be like, I fucked up. Something bad's happened in my life. And what I need to do is I need to sort my life out. So what you'd do is you'd, you'd pull back on the, you know, you'd stop drinking so much. You'd, pull, you'd stop using so much gear. You'd get a new job. You'd get a new girlfriend. And the quality of your life would pop back up to a 10. And you'd be like, <laughs> I'm sweet again. I'm sweet, and then so what would happen is eventually, you know, as you, I think you you call it the wolves, don't you? Yeah. You know, it comes calling, you know, and um, and what happens is that lifestyle comes calling, and eventually you slip back into it. Sometimes it takes a week, sometimes it takes a month, sometimes it takes whatever, and then what would happen is again you'd, you'd be using a lot of gear, you'd be drinking. And then the quality of your life, you'd lose a job, you'd lose a girlfriend, something bad had happened, and the quality of your life would go from a 10 down to an 8. And you'd go, shit, man, something bad's happened. I've got to pull my finger out and sort my life out. And so you'd cut back on the gear, you'd cut back on the drink, you'd work a bit harder, you'd get a new job, you'd get a new girlfriend, and then the quality of your life would go up to a 9. And at that point, you'd go, I'm okay now. But don't forget, that 9 was where you didn't want to be six months ago. So what was what used to be unacceptable very quickly becomes the daily norm. And then you go from a nine to an eight to a seven to a six. To eight. And so it was like two steps down, one step up, two steps down, one step up. And then before long, you know, before long, you're down. You're down I mean, like, luckily for me, so I went, <laughs> so, I knew there was something wrong with me when I was 19, right? So when I was 19 years old, I'm drinking on a daily basis and already the consequences of my drinking are very, very prevalent in my life. And I'm looking around at my peers, my friends, and their lives are pretty normal. And I'm like, how come my life's a fucking mess and their lives are all right? And, you know, by this time, they've got girlfriends, they're at university, they've got jobs, and they're thinking about buying houses and buying cars and all that. I'm still getting the bus and, you know, going and scoring gear and and just, you know, just, and I couldn't, you know, for, for being such a smart lad, I couldn't work out what the problem was. But I knew there was a problem when I was 19. I never put, I never said the A word. I never said I was an addict. I never said I was an alcoholic. I just, there was something not right about me. And so, you know, by the time 10 years later, When I was in, so I was in Marbella. I was working out in Marbella, um, and I was on my own basically. And you know, when you when you're in a foreign country on your own, a bit different for you in America. Everyone spoke English. You know, when you're living in a foreign country and you don't speak the language, you you know, you you move there and you get you, you you move into a gaff and you're sitting there in the gaff on your own with Spanish telly, and you're like, well, I can sit here and watch Spanish telly. Or I can go down the English bar down the road and speak to the English people and watch the English telly. So, what do you do? So, you end up, you know, you're in Marbella and you just end up going out on the lash every single night. And it's it's what they call the Marbella flu. You know, how people get it. And because what, what happens is you can't throw a stone in Marbella without hitting a coke dealer in the head, right? Everyone sells coke, like everyone, just everyone <laughs> sells coke, right? And so, what happens is, is, you go in the pub, you have a couple of pints, your nose starts twitching. And before long, someone goes, do you want a line? And you're like, yeah, I'll have a line. And then you've had a line and then you want more and then you just, and then you buy a bag and boom, 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 And then, you know, so once you've been there for three months and you've been bang at it every night for three months and you're just like, oh, <laughs> you just start feeling like death. So, and I'd heard about, you know, I knew what A was and like, I'd, well, I'd, I'd seen it on the telly and, and what have you. And, but I remember there was an advert on the front of the local English paper. that said, do you have a problem with alcohol? Call this number. And so I called the number, and uh, there was a lady called—I'm not going to actually—I'm not going to say her name—but um, there was a lady answered and I still, still friends with her to this day, and um, she was very kind and very welcoming. And she said, "Look, there's a meeting tonight. Why don't you come?" And it was the thing that sort of got me into it is when I turned up at that meeting, there was someone there I knew, yeah. And I'm like, "What? are you doing here like that?" And um, and so at the time, so I've got my first meeting when I was 29. And I knew that I needed help and I knew that I needed to be there. But unfortunately for me, my story, I just wasn't ready. And then so for the next part of my life, this was the worst part. Because what happens is you go to an AA meeting and an NA meeting and they go, right, this is what your problem is, mate. You've got a, pr- y- y- and I'm like, I've got a problem with alcohol. And they go, no, you've got a problem with Andy. Alcohol is a symptom of your problem. What you're doing is you have a problem inside your head. And what you do is you self-medicate that problem with alcohol. And when someone tells you that, you're like, oh, oh, I just thought the drink was the problem. <laughs> you know, throughout my life, I've gone, oh, the Coke's the problem, or the weed's the problem, or the drink's the problem. No, mate, what's the common denominator in all of those things? It's you, you're the problem. <laughs> and when someone explains that to you, you're like, oh, shit, it's me. My, like, I'm the problem. And it's like, and they're like, and they're like have you ever moved house? And something bad's happened. And they were like, and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, do you know why? I'm like, no. And they were like, because you were fucking there, mate. You were there. You know, when you move, you're there. That's why the bad things happen. And I'm like, oh, I, I get it now, sort of. And then what happens is you're not ready and you think, and you're, and you're like, I'm too young for this. I'm all right. I was different. And then you go out and you drink again. And then because you've got this knowledge of what you are and what your problem is, you then not have to drink more and use more to then numb those feelings. And so f- between the ages of 29 and 38, those next eight and a half, nine years, they were, the worst, they were the worst part of my drinking career because I knew what my problem was and I kept going out and having another go. So what would happen is I'd go in, I'd get sober for a couple of months, then I'd go back out and drink again. And then I'd, like, it would get worse. And then I'd come back in, I'd get sober for another month or two months or three months. And then I'd go back out and have another go and it was just every time I went back out and had another go it just got worse and, worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and um and and eventually i was i was very i consider myself to be very very lucky in the fact that something that i something that I totally didn't understand happened to me because you'd see people come in and get sober and I've been trying to get sober for years and you'd see these people come in and get sober and I'm like, yeah. And they'd be like, I came to my first meeting and I've never had a drink since and now I'm four years sober. I'm like, you prick. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) oh, I hate people like you and I just, I couldn't, I didn't work out what it was. And then you hear people telling all these stories about, you know, they've been to prison, they've been to mental homes, the, the, you know, they crashed a car and they killed someone and, you know, all of these horrific stories. I'd never done any of that. I was just an average dude a functioning alcoholic that liked to drink, liked to sniff and just fucked up a bit. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not like you. I'm not like you. I'm not like you. And it was, I was always picking the differences. I'm not like you. I'm not like you. I'm not like you. And, and I always thought, well, maybe something bad's got to happen to me. You know, if I go to prison or if I go to a mental hospital, or if I crash a car and kill someone, that'll make me stop drinking. And that was, you know, that was how fucked up my head was. I was looking at incarceration as a potential recovery program. You know what I mean? Like, that's how mental I was. And what happened is it just, it went out with a whimper rather than a bang. So like, you know, like, uh, you know, reading your book, you know, your, your drug-taking career stopped when you got your door kicked off by a SWAT team. You know, mine just, I woke up one day. I'd, so I went to the pub on the Sunday. I got pissed as usual, went into blackout, which was just a normal thing to me. And I've woken up on my sofa at home. No harm, no foul, yeah? And um, and just on this particular morning when I've woken up, this this feeling inside of me was just, I was mentally, physically, morally, spiritually broken into a million different pieces. And I just felt like, and there, there was two options in front of me at that moment in time. There was either stop drinking or kill yourself. You know what I mean? And I'm too selfish. I'm more homicidal than I am suicidal, yeah? And... I knew where the answer was and and I woke up and I just felt this. And I remember I was sitting alone in my house and I just put my hands up like that and I went, (sighs) I said, I can't do this anymore. I Can't do this anymore. I can't live my life like this anymore. And that was like six and a half years ago and I've not had a drink since.
1: Wow, congratulations, man. What a journey. Before we get into the later years then, let us go back over the crazy stories that happened during those years that you've just... Give us the trajectory of the addiction cycle, so expertly. So, your first door job, then, was the moon and spoon in Slough. (laughs) Well, I've done some talks in Slough, and if you look at a map of the country, it it shows, like, there's a lot of hardship in certain areas of the country, and there's a lot of hardship in Slough. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah.
0: So, so I was in, like I say, I was working in that club in Maidenhead for my sister, and... So you know, for me to for me to go and get a job as a doorman was a it was a fairly you know it was a, it was a it was a bold move on my behalf. So you know, like I say, I've grown up this fearful little child, and although you know I you know I played rugby at quite a high standard, um, quite I did judo, um, you know, and I was a big lad, and 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 I was always doing sport and what have you, and. But I was always terrified of conflict and terrified of violence, yeah? And it was like like physically used to make me shake, you know? If I thought someone was going to try and beat me up, like just the, the, that fear and terror that used to go through me was was just indescribable. And, and as such, at school and things like that, I was very much seen as the soft lad, yeah? Because I would never... If there was a fight, I would shy away from it. You know what I mean? If there were, you know, it just, it was never my thing. And I was always, I would, I would do anything to avoid uh, a physical confrontation. And then, um, so then I moved down here and obviously I was working in the pub in Newcastle and I was, you know, hanging around with these doormen who I used to idolize, these big, tough men. And I was like, I could never be like that. And then I moved down here. And obviously the doormen down here were a bit different. They weren't big, scary, sort of gangster-y level type people. They were just like normal guys. And I ended up sharing a gaff with um, one of the doormen from the club, guy called Jim, Big Jim, Big Jim Garner, real ex-squaddy, ex-military policeman, real tough man. And me and him used to, you know, we used to, you know, we were messing around and he said to me one day, he goes, Andy, why don't you be a doorman? And I was like, I can't do that. That's like well beyond my capabilities. And he went, look, he said, you're massive. And he said, "You know, you can you can really handle yourself verbally as well as physically." He said, "I think you'd be very very good at the job." Anyway, so I was getting sick of being a barman, and I was idolising these doormen. You know, the doormen in the in the club I was working out again were you know pretty tough. There was some real tough lads there, and we used to get on and have a laugh. And so I went. So one day I just uh, I ended up like I say, someone was like, "There's a door job there." I rang the company, said, "Like I want a job," and they went, "Right, you can start next week." And next thing, so I'm 20 years old. And I'm on the front door of this pub in Slough. And I mean, I, I look back on it now and I count my blessings and the fact that nothing really that bad happened. So I was working there for about three months and it was like the first night I worked, nothing happened. And then the second night I worked, some bloke kicked in one of the windows and I've ended up... And it was like, so this geezer's has run up to the bar. He, he got, he, he was barred from the bar. He wasn't allowed in. And he's took it upon himself, drunk, to boot one of the windows of the pub in, Right. So I've stepped outside, and there's this geezer stood there booting the window. And I'm like, right, look, mate, you, you know, come on, the old bill are going to, you know, the, the manager wants the old bill to come and da 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 da. And he's took off down the street, right? And at that point in time, I had, an, I had a choice to make. It was like, do I just let him run off or do I stand up for myself? And, and that was what I did. And so I gave chase and I took off with this, I chased this guy up Slough High Street. Rugby tackled him in the middle of the high street, twisted him up into an arm lock and dragged him back to the pub. And like, obviously the adrenaline and the... Like that, and like that was like the real first time I'd ever voluntarily entered into a confrontational situation. And I'm like, fucking hell, what did I just do? Like I was like totally went against everything and like, you know, everything. And, 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 you know, after it had all calmed down and obviously the police came and had to make a statement and all of that kind of stuff. And when it had all calmed down, and I'd realized that I'd done what was expected of me. I'd performed my job. And I'd actually got a bit of a buzz out of it. And I'd got like, I quite enjoyed the, the feeling. And then, you know, and then it just, and then, so for the next three months, there was a few little scuffles in the pub, like nothing serious. We threw a few people out, but there was no major kickoff. But there was, the, the, the worst thing I saw when I was working there was actually something that happened over the road. So there was me and this other kid was stood on the front door one night, and he's gone, look, 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 and I've turned around like that, and from the first floor of the building opposite, a kid just plummeted and landed on his head in the middle of the street. Oh
1: shit!
0: And I've just gone fuck. So, what had actually happened is I didn't like. So what had happened is there was a there was a nightclub over the road called Harry's, right? It was like a proper slough meat market, right? It was brilliant, right? And, um, and this kid had gone to the door of Harry's and the doorman had said, you're not coming in, you're barred or whatever. So he'd walked around the corner, shinned up a drain pipe and then like there was like the first floor, there was like a ledge and he's like Spider-Man and along the ledge like that, right? And he's got to the window and he's like climbing into the window of the club and some birds like on the dance floors just gone gadoom, and elbowed him. And he's just fallen, oh, like, and fucking landed on his head. Wow. So I've gone, like, I've run over, and as I've run over, he's stood up, what? like that. But obviously, the adrenaline or whatever, he's like stood up and gone, bump, and collapsed again. And he's got, he's got a hole in his head, like, like that. You know, like a two inch, <sighs> like, just piss and blood everywhere. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm like, whoa. Like that was the most one of the most brutal things I've ever seen in my life. Did he survive? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I um, mean, he's uh, by all accounts, he was, he was, uh, he was affected by it. I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, the, all I heard after that was rumors around town. But yeah, he survived. He, like the ambulance come pick him up and take him away. But the word on the street was that he was it slowed him down a little bit mentally. But that was,
1: you know. So what was the first melee that happened? Then, <clears throat> well, there was. I suppose there were,
0: again, I, I feel lucky in the fact that my door career sort of it got it got the the things that happened were increasing were, was increasing in tiny margins. So after so I've worked there, I've had a few scuffle skew few scuffles there. Um, you know, um, caught a, caught a guy sexually assaulting a girl out the back, oh. he, he brought him in, twisted him up, and 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 gave him a slap in the kitchen. Um, there was one of the manager's friends was in one night being a dick, and we launched him out, and you know, I nearly got nicked for that. And but it was, you know, they were all like I say, they were just minor scuffles that were getting slightly worse and worse. And then basically, uh, the, the, co- the the company who were who had the contract there, they weren't supplying. I was the go- I, I was there every week on time, and they were always there was always someone that wasn't there, and it was so they lost the contract. And then I went to work in another pub which is called The Huntercombe. And this has got a reputation in Slough. It's on Junction 7 of the M4. So it's out of town in a place called Sippenham. And if you come off Junction 7 of the M4, the first building you see is this pub on the corner. And it's like full of Irish travellers and stuff like that. And it's pretty tasty. And um, yeah, there was this guy in there called Martin. I remember big, I used to call him Martin, I think. And he was like a big old lump. Anyway, he's, he's kicked off one night. And we've ended up, you know, we've ended up dragging him out and having a bit of a scuffuffle with him in the car park and stuff like that. And he come back the next day, and all of this, and it was again, it was nothing life threatening, yeah? yeah, nothing life threatening. And then um, I'm working in a place called the Prince of Wales, which was, which is now a McDonald's. Probably the best thing they ever did to it. And again, we had a, we had a big, we had a big, we had a, a fairly large confrontation in there um, with a group of lads, and. You'll find that different police forces treat doormen differently. So in Maidenhead, if you're working on the door to par in a par of Maidenhead and you give someone a slap, you will get arrested. Yeah. Whereas in Slough, if you're working on the door in Slough and you give someone a slap, the old Bill will come along and pat you on the back. Right? It just you've got to be very careful about where you. I remember once, so we we're having this scuffle, right, and this guy's went to hit me with an ash. He's picked up one of them big ashtrays and gone for me. So I've stepped in, I've grabbed him by the throat, and I've smashed his head off a table like that. And I've got him like that, and I've pulled my hand back, and I'm just about to pummel him into the head like that. And I've looked up, and the old bill are running into the pub, and the cop has looked at me in the eye, and I'm like, hey, doo-doo, 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 like that. <laughs> and the cop has one moment, he's like, what, what are you doing? I went, Well, he said, It's your pub. He says, You deal with it how you want to deal with it. I was like, Go and get him back. Go and get him. <laughs> um, but then, the, so then, like I said, again, it was all, it was getting. Progressively worse, but it was still relatively non life threatening and non minors. And then I got invited to work in a club in Wokingham called Aztecs. Now, so Aztecs had a reputation, and you know, I'm, you know, so I started working on the door when I was 20. By this time, I'm 21. I've been doing a job for about a year. I've worked in a few different places. I'm, you know, getting a bit of a reputation, not as like I say, I'm not a hard man. I'm, you know, nothing like that. I'm not one of these guys. I'm just an average bloke who can have half a row. That's what I always say. And as I turned out, I learned that I was, I would rather, I would rather jump into a situation than lose face by running away. Yeah. Even if I thought I was going to get me, get, get me head kicked in. Right. And so that, when people trust you to jump into a situation, you start getting off at work. Right. And so this club was run. There was a mate of mine who was called Romeo, real tough guy, um, from Stoke. He was the head doorman and there was a few of my other mates who were working there. And it was a Friday night or a, no, it was a Saturday night, I think. And I, I'd been out on the night I'd been out the night before and I was hung over like a bitch and I'd been at work all day and and I was I was on my way to, I was on my way home. And I'm like, oh, I'm nearly home. I'm going to go in. I'm going to smoke a joint. I'm going to lie on the sofa and I'm going to fall asleep. And the phone rang and it was Romeo and he said, do you want to come and work in the club tonight? And that was like, when when, when you get offered that kind of job, that's like a big pat on the back for you, saying look, you know, you're trusted and you're welcome, right? Um, And I thought, well, if I say no now, he's never going to ask me again. So I've gone, right. So I've gone down. I've gone, right, okay, so I've gone in. I've got a couple hours, Kip, and I've gone to work. And Obviously, so I've gone in and like, there was a few of the lads there I knew, and there was a couple of lads I didn't. And they're like, they, the few of the lads that I knew had seen me working as a barman, not as a doorman. And they're like, what's this barman doing here dressed as a doorman? You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, so, anyway, first night, I mean, I'm stood in one of the dance podiums. And again, there was just this massive geezer started smashing up this other fella in the bar. And this was, there was no cameras. There was no radios. There was none of this. It was like proper old school. You know what I mean? This is like the, this is, you know, the mid, this is, yeah. So we're talking 97, 97, 98. And um, so obviously I've just gone, right, this is it. You've got to show what you're worth here. So I've run across and I've just jumped on this big geezer and got him in a headlock and we've gone on the ground and I'm like squeezing him in the headlock like that. And I'm waiting for the lads to turn up and there's just nothing happening. All the bar staff had them air horns. And I'm like trying to like attract the attract the barmaid's attention like that. Eventually she saw me, she blew the horn, and the lads have come in, and there's me rolling around on the floor with this massive lump. And and they're all like, yeah, you're all right, mate. Yeah, you know, if you were gonna jump into that on your own, you're all right. And um and so I got I got a regular slot there, Fridays and Saturday nights, and it was, you know, you're working with a good bunch of lads, and everyone's everyone's got everyone's game, you know. And that is the thing about working on the door. I'm not the hardest man in the world. I've never professed to be. Like I say, I'm just an average bloke that can have half a row. And there was a few other lads there who were quite good martial artists. There was another lad who was a big bodybuilder character. And there was like a mix of characters. But everyone was game. And everyone had each other's back. And that's what you need to be a good door team. And just so one night, I'm stood at the front door. And the horn goes, right? The barmaids press the horn. And that means somewhere inside the club, something bad's happening. So we've just gone, thump, run into the club. And I've run into the club and I've looked around and there's just a real weird atmosphere. But no one's doing anything. It's like there's no fights happening, there's no punching. And it's just, everyone's just staring at each other like with this. And I'm like, what's going on here? Like, like this, is, this is a bit weird. And then all of a sudden, some fella tried to hit some other fella and me and one of the other doormen grabbed him and threw him out of an exit and we've come back in. And I've looked up and, and, the, and the lads are lined up at the end of the club So I've seen where the lads are and I've just gone and joined the end of the line. So there's five of us like that with our back against the wall. And I've looked up and there's just a nightclub full of people staring at us with their hands up like that. And I've just looked up and just gone, oh, fuck. Like, oh man, this is wearing some shit now. And I don't know what had happened like in between that, but basically, like I said to you earlier, right? 99% of the time working on the door, you've got this bloke and this bloke and they're trying to hurt each other. And you run in, split them up, and throw them out. Job done. This was 40 geezers looking at us, going for us. And I was like, oh, shit. So we've sort of, then, so I don't know if you ever heard. You know what? You know, you know there's there's a like people always go off. Oh, there's a big thing. What you do is you chin the biggest one, and then the others will run away. You ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. Someone tried that and it didn't work. So, Rich, right? One of the lads, Big Rich, we used to call him. He was like a Mr. Britain bodybuilder. He was a he was a unit, and he's just stepped forward and knocked this fella out, the biggest fella there, thinking that that was going to defuse the situation. <laughs> oh, it had the complete opposite effect, right? So they've all started moving towards us and Romeo, the head door, and he went, hold the line, boys, hold the line. And he held us together and we, we all like formed a line. Like and, like and we were slowly, you know, they were advancing and we were stepping back slowly. And a- a- every time like one of them stepped forward too far, they got a bit of a crack, right? Whoever was closest. And we got to the reception area and we were in the reception area. And just when we got to the reception area, it just went off. Like something just went boom. And just it, like, you know, that like them wild west saloons where everything's just happening. So there was five doormen and 40 people just throwing punches at each other. And so, um, one of the lads got dragged out by these two geezers. So I've run out. He's getting weird in, like outside the front door. I've, I've run out and I don't know, like I just, one of the luckiest shots, lucky, you know, technically because at the time I wasn't that good a boxer, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I was good at judo and rugby and. You know, I was I was good at grappling people, but I wasn't very good at striking. And so I've stepped out and I've hit this kid, and he's like, I just give him a little tap, and he sort his head went like that, and he came back at me like that. And as he's come back at me, I've just cracked him with a big hook and sparked him clean out. And and like the manager at the bar, the manager at the club was like, "Holy shit!" And I'm like, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> like again, it was you know, i it was just it was a half 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 look, and then so he. Got, got the other lad back in. We're back in. And then again, there's just people. I'm fighting him and then I'm fighting him. And then and then, I'm fighting this one geezer like that. And I've got him down and I'm hitting him like that. And the, mo- like, the most amazing thing still I've ever seen to this day. So Romeo was a kickboxer. He's a like skinny little black dude. Not very big. About 5'10", about 12 stone, right? And like I say, I come from Newcastle where all the doormen are 20, 25 stone. So I've, and, and but people told me that Romeo was a fucking, like a real odd character, and I'm like that. And obviously, I got a Norman, you know, very good kickboxer. And so we're in the reception, it's all kicking off, and this geezer's walking towards Romeo, like with his hands up like that. And he went like that, and he went, Don't come any closer. And the geezer kept him out, and he went, Don't come any closer. And then Romeo's foot, right, just came up and kicked this geezer in the face and knocked him. Clean the fuck out, and he just like he, he, just this foot just come up and the noise it made was like whack, and the guy just went boom was like unconscious before he hit the floor, and everyone stopped what they were doing. So I've got this kid on the geezer on the floor, and I'm hitting him in the head. Everyone's fighting like it's just everyone's like it's proper. This is life threatening time. This is shit's hit the fan. You you just keep going until until there's no one left to hit right, and um. And I've got the skis on. I'm hitting him in the head. And Romeo kicked this fella, and I just went like that, fuck, like that. And everybody, there was like thirty people fighting, just stopped what they were doing, looked at this kid on the floor for about three seconds, and then just carried on fighting again. It was really <laughs> like a comedy, like what you would see like in the comedy films or like you know the, the old westerns. And it just like I say. And then, so we, you know, by the time it had finished, there was uh, there was there was six of us. One of the other doorman was next door. He's come back. And by the time it had finished, I've got scratches up my neck, my shirt's ripped open, I'm covered in blood, my knuckles are all swollen up like that, I've got, you know, whatever. And we're all still on my feet. So the six doormen still stood up, and there's just 30 bodies lying all over the floor. And the, the, the old bill ran in, all in that, like, so the, the riot police turned up. And by the time they arrived, like after 10 minutes... They've run in with their shields and the batons and the helmets and all that. And there was just six doormen like this. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they've just taken one look around like that and just gone and walked out. <laughs> that was it. And it was, that was the biggest, scariest night of my entire life. And um, it was like that. Was, but the, the thing about it was, again, this was like in the 80s, man. The thing about Aztecs was... It was full of squaddies, full of travellers and full of normal people, right? There was a, there was a few traveller sites around, there were barracks down the road and there was, you know, your normal. So you'd get like 300 people in there on a Friday, Saturday night, but you were guaranteed a kickoff. But it was always fisticuffs, no knives, no weapons, none of that bullshit, right? It was always fisticuffs. And the thing was, is like I said, there was no cameras, right? And to get in the club, you actually, it was weird, right? So the front, the front door of the club was round the back of the building. So you had the road, and it was next to this bowling alley. So to get to the front door, you had to go down a side road into the car park and then round the car park into the front door of the club. So you've got the door of the club, the car park, and then there's a railway line there. And so once you cross the threshold of this road and you come down the side road, there's no cameras there. You belong to us. yeah. And once you cross that road, whatever happens, happens. Yeah. And so what would happen is if two blokes started fighting in the club, we'd run in, split them up, take them out in the car park, surround them and go, carry on like that. And normally the one that started it would be the one that would be like, "Uh, well, uh, uh, no, no, like that. Because they all know that when you start something in a club, the bouncers are going to split it up. Yeah, we were like that. We don't play those games around here, mate. You want to do that, let's fucking do it properly in the car park.
1: And um, yeah, it was just, you know, that was proper, proper old school, mate. Was there a situation with a chainsaw? That
0: <laughs> So that was in Slough. So in Slough, there was a nightclub called Slough's. So obviously, you know, Slough, Slough, that's where everyone takes the piss. So, But Slough's was... S L U F F S, Sloughs. And it was at the bottom end of Slough High Street near this old co op, near the Greyhound track, what used to be. I mean, again, we're talking 20, you know, near enough 25 years ago, something like that. I mean, it's all been demolished now. It doesn't exist anymore. So, Sloughs was the meat market of Slough. It was over 25s only, right? So, if you were young, you went to Harry's, that club where the kid fell out the window and hit his head. If you were old or if you were older, you went to sloughs. And so I'm working on the door to sloughs one night. And again, you know, there's quite a lot of traveller sites around. And there's also quite a lot of fake travellers. You know what I mean? The ones that go, like, my best mate's a traveller, right? And he never tells anyone he's a traveller. Never, right? He doesn't like people knowing. But there's the ones that go around telling everyone that they're a traveller. They're generally the ones that they're not the, they're not the ones you've got to worry about, right? And this kid was one of them, right? And so we're in the club. He's you know he's pissed up and he's started on someone. And me and, me and this other kid, we've gripped him up. and We've took him out the back exit. We've thrown him out. He's turned around. He's gone for me. He swung for me. And I've just pinged him once and put him down. So shut the door, gone back in the club, gone back to the front door. So he's come round the back of the club and tried to walk back towards the front door. And there was a lad called Steve working with us, big muscly lad, bodybuilder. He's just picked this kid up off the floor and started squeezing his neck like that. And I'm like, like the kid started going all kinds of weird colours and that. And I'm like, Steve, you want to put him down? You're going to kill him. And he's like, Steve's like, I mean, proper ride raged up and that. He's like, <laughs> and then so Steve's like, kid's got unconscious. He's thrown him on the floor. And we're like, well, that's got to be it. Kid's come back round and he's gone for it again. Anyway, there was a, the head doorman was called Craig. And we used to take, me and my mate used to take the piss out, and we didn't think he was all that, right? Never really seen him get involved in a bit of a, scu- in, in, in major scuffles or anything. He was a nice enough fella, but, you know, we just, we didn't think he was a pure doorman. You know what I mean? He was a, we thought he was a bit of a shirt filler. Well, as it turned out, on this particular night, he decided to prove everyone different. And um, Craig's picked this geezer up, hide him on the floor, got on top of him, and smashed him in the head a few times. And, you know, so I've, I've chinned him, Steve's chinned him, Craig's chinned him. The geezer's had a beating, right? Anyway, so he's jumped up. He's going, I'm going to fucking come back and kill you bastards and all that. And we're like, oh, yeah, I heard that twice last week off your mother and, you know, all of that, you know, whatever. But, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, I've had a million people threaten to come back and get me. 99.99% of them never do. But. On this particular occasion, <laughs> so he's jumped in a, tra- he pissed out his face, right? Jumped in a transit van and driven off, it's like swerving all over the road. And we're like, oh, you'll go home and fall asleep and whatever, right? So anyway, about 20 minutes later, I stood at the door and the fucking transit vans pulled up. And now sloughs had this ramp up to the front door, right? It's about 10 meters long. So I'm stood at the, like I'm stood here and the and the ramp's going down like that and he's pulled up his transit van at the bottom of the ramp and he's fucking got out the transit van open, slid open the door pulled a chainsaw out and stood at the bottom of the ramp with a chainsaw like that and I'm like oh fuck now you know we might have some of the doorman may have been carrying some assistance in their pocket in the form of you know certain hard objects or certain objects that may cause irritation to the eyes and um, and so, obviously, the shout's gone up. Giza's turned up with a chainsaw. Manager's come running out with a pickaxe handle, right? All the doormen are pulling their tools out. And um, and this kid stood at the bottom of the ramp, and he's looked at me like that, and he's gone, no, no, na no, no, And I'm like, there's no petrol in that. And he's just started going, no, and I've just turned around to my mate, and I've just gone, if he pulls that once more and it doesn't start, I'm going to fucking do him. <laughs> and he's gone, no, no, no. And I've just, so I've just took off down the ramp like that. <laughs> and obviously, as soon as I've took off, all the other lads are like, fuck it, right, like that. And they've all talked. So I've just run down the ramp like that. And I've just gone, bang, cracked him, and he's hit the deck. And basically, five of us just jumped up and down on him. You know, we're like that. Look, you know, the bottom line is... is uh, I can put my hand on my heart and say that I never bashed anyone that didn't deserve it. I'm not one of those geezers. I don't go around slapping people for no reason. And in fact, you know, with that instill that inherent fear that I carry inside of me, I will do anything to avoid having to punch someone, right? However, if you're in a situation where that's what's required, that's what you got to do. And like I say, I consider this geezer waving a chainsaw in my face to be a requirement of him getting a good fucking kicking. And that's what happened. mine what happened with the swords? Well, this is Slough again. You know, fucking hell. <laughs> so, so like there was a, night a club. Shop. <laughs> so this was so on the uh, there, was, there was a club called the Four One Two, which is was on the A Four One Two, coming between Slough and Uxbridge. So you come out of Slough about a mile or two up the road on the left-hand side, standalone building nightclub. Shithole of the highest fucking order, right? So, if you if if you, like the, like I say, the younger crowd used to go to Harry's, the older crowd used to go to Schluffs, the scumbags used to go to Four One Two, and it was garage music, right? So it was um they used to have that Rince FM in Slough, and this was when it was a pirate radio station, so it was all like the garage music and all that. So you had um the Asian crowd, you had the travelling crowd, and you had the uh, the blacks, right? And all three gangs would be like, basically, like, you know, they're going to they're gonna have a row at some point, right? And, and obviously, it was one of them clubs where everyone was smoking weed, just walking around the club. And you like, there's a, like say there's 500 people in there, 400 of them are smoking weed. What are you going to do? Throw them all out? You just like, to, okay, right? And so I've, my mate Tyrone was the head doorman there. And again, Tyrone was a tough lad, had a reputation, you know, and um, real, real tough, tough lad. And so we've gone to work there and and um, been working there a few weeks and it was all you know whatever a few scuffles and so one week I get a phone call and they go right Andy th- th- we're short staffed at a club in Stains can you go down to Stains just for that for that um, for for the Saturday night I'm like yeah no problem gone to Stains worked in Stains while I was in Stains one of my mates got his finger cut off with a machete right so he's um, lad called Sam. And they've, there's some, some traveler fella had done something, whatever. I I wasn't there, thrown him out. He's gone away. He's the old, I'm going to come back and get you. And he fucking did. And, um, and so he's come back, he's gone away, come back with a machete, walked up to the front door, seen Sam and fucking gone for him with that, like that, right? Sam's put his hand up like that and the machete's took his little finger off, right? So obviously, all the doormen, again, they're all tooled up and that. They've all pulled. They've all pulled tools out and weighed into this geezer and smashed them to fucking bits. Right, so the rumor was like next Friday night I'm back at the four one two, and the word on the street was is that they're coming back. Right, so we were on edge. Right, we were like, you know, like if you, you know, we were already at an eight. You know what I mean? Like mentally, we're like this. We were already at an eight. We're expecting it, and so everyone's. Tooled up to the max. I've got batons, dusters, gas, a lot, right? And we're like, if they turn up tonight, they're getting it, mate. So there's like six or seven doormen. Anyway, so we've got towards the end of the night. Nothing's really happened, but we're still at an eight, man. Anyway, we've thrown this like we've thrown this this matey out, uh, Asian lad, thrown him out, and Lord, all of his mates have come out in the car park, and there's about ten of them. There's about five of us. And it's gone off in the car park, right? And you know they're no match for us, right? Like just fisticuffs, and um, so we've basically gone into them and smashed them all to pieces in the car park, right? Like what I caught one of them with a kick and knocked them out, like just you know it was it was a melee, but it was we we got the like we we instantly had the better of them, and you know it was we were fairly confident in doing what we're doing. And so, you know, da-da-da-da-da, we have finished work, we've had a drink, da 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 And uh, one of the barmaids is going to give us a lift home, so I've gone out to her car. I've got in her car, and we're just pulling out the car park like that. And like 15 of them just turned up with swords. <laughs> and like, the thing was, is they were looking for me, basically. Because I was the one that had thrown the matey out to begin with. I was the one that had knocked the matey out in the car park, Right. And they were like, where's that big Geordie lad? Where is he? Like, and they'd come for me. And the thing was, I'm in this bird's car, and they walked straight past me. Like, they didn't look in the car. And I've looked up, and I'm like, fuck, like that. And they've all 15 of them were swords have like walked straight past me like that. So I've rang Tyrone. I'm like, Tyrone, I'm like, they've come back. And he went, just fucking go. He went, get out of here right now. So we drove off. And as we drove off, they just started smashing all the windows of the club with the swords and all that. And um, I mean, bearing in mind this club. Like, if you ring a taxi, like if you if you were like to ring a taxi firm and say can I have a club, at, can I have a taxi at the four one two, they'd be like no. <laughs> Just in like to get the old bill to turn up there was a fucking mission, you know what I mean? And like so they have, like it took the, and and it was out of town on its own, and the police didn't really care, man. And so yeah, so they like all the windows got smashed to the club and everything like that. And yeah, so like I got a phone call in the week, and Tyrone was like, "Yeah, Andy, I don't think, I don't think you should come back here, mate." I was like, "That, yeah, all right then." Yeah, it was like that was it was a, uh, it was I mean, Slough, you know, was a pretty tasty place, man, back in the day.
1: When you got fifteen guys with swords, they just locked the doors.
0: Yeah, so that was it. They just they locked all the doors, and obviously, luckily, all the windows had like uh, mesh on them and bars on them. So you couldn't get in, but like they still smashed all the glass and everything like that. But basically all the staff were apparently in the middle of the club, like on the dance floor, like as far away from the doors and windows as possible. And uh, there's like all these mates were trying to get in and that, and they were looking for me, aye. So Did you get glassed at the Mirage? That was it, yeah. So So this was, I don't know, maybe it's a couple of years later. And I mean, I say I get glassed. I've got a tiny little scar on my wrist there. And this was. Um, this was the case of mistaken identity, right? So this was, um, so it's a new, it was a new, it was a, basically it was a new company for me. So I've, like, I was looking for a job, rang this guy up and he's like, he's like, all right. I said, oh, you, you you need some guys? He said, yeah. And he said, well, I don't normally take people on until I meet them. And then I got chatting to him and he knew a few people that I knew. And obviously I've been doing a job for a long time by then. And he went, all right, yeah, I know who you are. He says, yeah, we can get you start this week. So Obviously, you're going in there. It's your first night with a new door crew. You've got to like, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to try and impress them. You know what I mean? You've got to make sure that you're not looking like a not looking like a like a butler, you know. And so, this Mirage House of Windsor, and it was again like garage night, fifteen hundred people in there. They're all smoking weed. You got all your different goop gangs, and and different um, brackets of society. Anyway, so there's a call on the radio. It's like. It's like two in the morning, three in the morning. Everyone's off their nut, right? And bearing in mind, someone had got shot in there, like the, on the on the on the Christmas before that, like someone had smuggled a gun in and murdered someone on the dance floor. So you know, like the again, your 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 level is pretty high when you're working there. You know what I mean? yeah, you know your your anticipation, and yet you know you are already on a six. You know, and so there's a shout on the radio: boom, 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 boom. I was running in, and there's this, like, a big Rasta-looking dude, dreadlocks and all that, like, 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 he was a big unit as well, and he's struggling, like, there's a couple of doormen struggling with him, right? So I've just run over, jumped on him, twisted his arm up into a final lock, into a gooseneck final lock, and I've just started dragging him out of the bar, right? And I mean, it was a struggle, you know, but then the other two have got him, and da-da-da-da-da. So... We've got like the top, so the the club's on a third floor, right? So you've got a couple of of sets of, a couple of flights of stairs to get this fella down or get him in the lift, right? And um, so we get to the top of the stairs and then there's another fight starts in front of me between these two fella's. So I've got these other two doormen and they've got this guy and I say, have you got him? And they go, yes. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and deal with that. So I've left go of this fella and I've jumped in there, I've jumped in there, split this fight up wasn't very big. It was just two little mugs. Split them up. One doorman's got him. Another doorman's got him. Anyway, so as I've split this fight up, the big Rasta fella who these guys have got breaks free. <laughs> There's a guy just stood there minding his own business, right? He runs over, picks up a glass, smashes the glass, and starts slicing this guy's face over like that. And I'm like, holy shit. The fuck? so obviously i've run over and i've grabbed him like that and he's turned around like that with a glass and he's gone like that to, to get me with it so i put my hand up oh. like that and it's just caught me like in the wrist there like i see a tiny little like not a very big scar and and he's just and he's gone like that and he's and he's and he's come around like that and he's and he's hit me and so I've, I've palmed it down like that and i've just fucking nutted him as hard as i could and he stumbled back and then i pushed him and he fell down the stairs He's gone tumbling down the stairs. And then obviously like a load of the lads run in, jumped them and grabbed them and dragged them out. So there's this poor kid stood there with his face all sliced open. Just a random kid. Well, so we've got this kid down to the front and we've got like, there was because it was like a rave club and there was a lot of drugs in there, they had paramedics on standby for overdoses and dehydration and like overheating and all of that. And so the paramedics have started patching this kid's face up. And and we're like, look, what happened, man? He's like, I don't know. I've never seen that geezer before in my life. And so we, obviously, after it's all happened, we go back and we try and piece together what's happened. So basically, this Rasta fella's in the club with his mate and some random kids run over and glassed his mate, right? And that's when it all kicked off. And then, obviously, I've come into it after all of this has happened. I've not seen any of this. All I've seen is man kicking off, and that's when I've entered the melee, right? So, when we've got to the top of the stairs, your man's looked over and seen this kid and thought it was the geezer that's glassed his mate, right? Oh. So, he's seen this kid and run over and started weighing into him with a, with a bit of broken glass da 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 we said right so anyway we're all walking around the club going what the fuck happened they're like How, we're like where it just, no one could work out who started it who hadn't started it da 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 and then this girl come up to me and she went there's a man in the woman's toilet you need to go in and fucking sort that out right now so obviously we're on a nine by this point I'm like fucking yeah. <laughs> so I'm like I didn't know who this guy was what he was doing you know people have been glassed there's blood everywhere and so I've I've gone in the toilet I've pulled a can of cs gas out right and i've fucking booted the toilet door like that and i'm like that right and i've looked in the door and there's a guy hiding in the cubicle could have been the fucking twin brother of the guy that just got glassed so he was the one that started it he's gone up to matey and fucking jucked him up in the club with a broken bottle or whatever rasta man's kicked off we've been dragging him out he's seen your mate your man there thought it was the same geezer and sliced his face open. And then I found the geezer that actually did it and they could have been twins. And so this poor lad was just on a night out with his mate, was standing there minding his own business and some big fellas just carved his boat open with a broken glass. I mean, it was horrific. What was the motive for the original glassing? don't know, really. I mean, we just, like I say, it got to the point there where I wasn't asking questions. So I've booted the toilet door open. As soon as my eyes have clocked this kid, I've put two and two together and realized what, and I'm like, you fucking prick, come here. And so I've just grabbed him and dragged him out and like got him down to the front. And
1: um, But yeah, it was, I mean, it was scary how alike these two people looked. Yeah, yeah. So what happened then with the army football team? <laughs> <laughs> so that was at Aztecs. That was again that was in Wokenham. This is the
0: one where we've had the big kickoff. And so um it was one night, it was one of the lads Goose. It was his birthday. So um he was right, So he's his name's Dave Gander. So we'll call him Goose, right? And he was he was, there was a bit of a standing joke, right? He was he was one of these people, right? He wasn't he, he like he wasn't the biggest lad and he wasn't the toughest lad, but he was game as fuck, right? And whenever it kicked off, he always ended, he always used to get hit, right? So <laughs> we'd always say, if it kicks off, make sure you get your head in the way, goose. You know what I mean? He was always jumping in, right? And he was a roofer and he had these big old hands like that. And he used to grab people like that and he was sound, right? right? Like I say. And even though he couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag, really, I'd, he was guaranteed to jump in and I'd rather have someone like that any day of the week. So it was his birthday and he was in on the piss, right? And some geezer from the week before or whatever has, like, come and, like, something, I'm stood there and he's come and he's kicked off with Goose. And Goose is about to, like, start a fight with this guy in the club. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, look, if you start a fight in the club, when you're in here on the piss, you're going to get the sack. I said, you know, you can't be doing that. I said, what we'll do? So I've just fucked, mate. I just went, fuck off, mate. You know what I mean? And he's gone. And I said, what we'll do? I said, we'll wait for him to leave. I said, if you want to chin him. He said, yeah, I want to chin him. I went, right, okay so if you want to chin him, what we'll do is we'll wait for them to leave. We'll go outside, you chin him, and if any of his mates jump in, I'll chin his mates. He went, right. So that's what we've done. We've waited for Matey to leave. Goose has followed them out. Matey's getting into a taxi. Goose has gone, oh, bang, cracked him. There's two mates with them. They were both getting in a taxi, and I've stood there. They've looked up, seen me. One of them's come running towards us. But luckily, they were like further. So the first one, bang, cracked him. The second one, bang, cracked him. Me and Goose were like that. Hey, like that. And we've turned around and there's 15 of them. And we're like that. <laughs> oh, fuck. And yeah, so like five of them pulled me off into a corner and just started like like luckily I was like moving backwards and 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 I was sort of like that and I was pushing them back. And and I sort of avoided getting a good like there were so sort of, few of them were throwing digs and that, but ten of them were basically jumping up and down on goose in the oh. car park. And um and like it was, it probably it was probably only a matter of thirty seconds to a minute. I mean, I don't know. It was probably only a very short amount of time, but it felt like for fucking ever. And then all of a sudden, the, the cavalry come out the club. The boys come running out the club. It was like da 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 da, and um and yeah, and then it just all kicked off. So anyway, um, someone, someone might have been carrying a knuckle duster that night, and um and then basically this. So it was all sort of. We'd sort of got it all, and so Goose was on the floor. He'd been, he'd had a good, good kicking. And just I saw this geezer just run up and kick Goose straight in the face like, took a run up, like penalty kick with Goose's head. So I've just stepped forward, like, I've just pulled the thing out of my pocket, like that, and just stepped forward and just cracked this geezer with it and just bust his face open, like that. The geezer's lying on the floor, blood everywhere, like that. And then I've just looked up and the cook the fucking old bill cars have come around the corner. I'm like, ah, running the club through the through through the threw the, threw the duster at one of the bar I went, hide that! Like that. And I've just gone and hid around the other end of the club and all that. And um, yeah, but that was, that was what Aztecs was like, man. You know what I mean? It was just, it was, you were guaranteed a proper fucking kickoff, man. What about Lineker's in Marbella? Well, <laughs> it was just, so like I say, I went to Marbella. What happened was when I was like 26, 27, I got offered a job and that was, you know, bordering on what we're going to be talking about, about the boiler rooms and stuff like that. So um, I um, I got offered a job basically working in a boiler room in Marbia. And um, and I went out there and it was all right. And then anyway, so I was I was going into Linux as I was a, I was a regular customer and all that. And, you know, when you're a regular, you get to know, you know, because obviously it's a holiday destination. So you get, you know, people are out there for a week or two weeks. But if you're there every week, you get to know the staff, and they're like, you know, you're one of the, you know, you know, you're you're a local, aren't you? And I was always like, oh, give me a job, give me a job. It looks cool in here. And then uh, eventually one day I got the call up, and I got to work there. And um, this was, you know, so this was like what 2007, 2008. This is like before Bethesda had had its resurgence. Marbella was the place to go, um, you know. And this was, um, you know, Linux as was. I am going to say the best bar it was the cheapest bar in Benous, right and so it was where everyone went and so I'm I'm working on in the most popular bar in the most popular holiday destination in Europe and it was full of celebrities and just it was it was and it was one of the best summers of my life <laughs> and um and when you're working it's like anyway when you so for for people who've been you've got your first line and your second line so your first line is the like the harbor front so you've got the water then you've got all the bars on the front. And then you've got your second line, which is your next road down. And that's where Linickers was on the second line. And when you're working in one of them bars, obviously you get to know everyone and they get to know you. And then there was one occasion where I was I would I'd been back to England the week before to MC a fight, right? And then I'd come back and the fight at MC the week before was on the telly. So I'm stood in Linickers like this, like working on the door and there's a massive screen above my head and I'm on the fucking telly. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, <laughs> and so that like, and like everyone sort of kind of made a bit of a joke out of it. And it's sort of, you know, that, that like that was a bit of a funny kind of story that sort of spread around the town. And then, you know, so you'd be walking down to work, you'd start work at 10 o'clock at night and you'd be walking down and everyone would be like, hey, and then obviously when you finish work, it was just, you know, there was, um, when you worked in, in Linux, you got a card. You got like a staff card. And that was like basically a license to get free stuff everywhere you went. So you didn't pay to get any clubs. You got free drinks everywhere and da 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 And it was like, so you'd work from 10 till 5 in the morning and then you'd go clubbing. And then there was a villa there. So we used to call it the villa. It was like this private villa where you could only go there if you worked in a bar in, in the thing. And it was basically like an after party. You know what I mean? Just full of people, bang on the gear. So you'd get down the villa at like eight in the morning and you'd be there till midday and you'd get back because that was, you know, by the time we finished work, it was thingy. And then, you know, you'd go home, you'd sleep and then you'd go and do it all again. And, um, and some like, you know, we had a crew there, man. So, but we had, so there was Lineker's, there was another bar next door called um, Disco. There was a strip club up, up above. Um, can't remember what it was called now. And then there was the bar over the way called Portside. So there was like four bars all owned by the same people, all linked up with radios. So there was like, on a weekend, there was 12 doormen working these four bars and they were all units and they all loved the job. And, uh, you know, again, good mixture. Like the head doorman from Linux, Mark, this big Hells Angel character, real hard man. Um, he had a couple of um, uh, this Argentinian lad who was a real big scare. Like used to used to do a lot of the bodyguard work for the gangsters and all that. Um, there was this German lad who was an ex-riot policeman, big lump, and um, yeah, there was you know there was some proper proper characters there, and obviously there was twelve of us. So if you wanted to come in and kick off, if you ain't got twenty-four mates, you ain't doing shit, bruv. You know what I mean, <laughs> like that. And like so, obviously you get all these they get all these pricks who come come away. Obviously they're all day drinking on the holiday and that, and then they come out. But the best thing about Spain was, like I said to you before you know, different, old, different different police forces would treat you differently depending on where you were. The best thing about the Spanish old bill was if you spoke a bit of Spanish, they hated the tourists, hated them. So if you, like, if, if something happened and you gave a tourist a slap, right, and they went to the old bill and complained about you, the old bill would wear them in. <laughs> like, so if they went up and said, oh, the bouncers just beat me up, they're like, drunken tourists. And like, in Spain, there is no such crime as police brutality. They just don't <laughs> give a fuck. And um, yeah, and they will, like the Spanish old bill will quite happily weigh you in. If like if you lay your if you touch a Spanish policeman, they have the legal right to do whatever they want to you, basically. And um, yeah, and they take that right a lot. <laughs> but yeah, Lineker's was great, you know, and so you know, like I got to know Wayne Lineker, um, because he was you know, living there at the time and it was that was the the flagship bar and stuff like that. And and then so a lot of the staff who I mean we're talking this was like what, 13, 14 years ago, still quite good mates to them via social media and stuff like that. It was just, you know, there was you know, you had the thing about Marbella is it's full of some really scary people, right? But it's like anything, you know, you you treat people you know, with a bit of respect, and you know they're gonna. So you, you had like there was a big, there a big, the big firm of paddies over there. I'm not going to mention no names, but we all, you know, they've been in the news recently. Um, there's there was a big firm of Manx, big firm of Scousers and a big firm of Brummies, right? They were like the ones that would, you know, be balling around the, the the you know the town, but they were like, you know, they were English thugs that sold drugs, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, you didn't want to fuck with these people at all, right? But, you know, compared to like the Bulgarians or the Russians, they were fuck all, mate. Like the scariest looking dude I ever saw looked like Ron Jeremy, the porn star, right? And it was August, I'm on the front door, and these dudes have walked towards the front door, and you've got this little Ron Jeremy looking character with these two gorillas, either side of them, and they've both got a leather jacket on, with a suspicious bulge under the armpit right and this guy stepped forward the, one of the gorillas and he's going to can, can we come in and I'm like yeah of course you can he's like thank you and they've just come in stood at the end of the bar had a couple of drinks and left and on the way out he's gone thank you very much and I'm like that ah, you're welcome and I'm just like are you proper like you're like russian mafia proper gangsters you know like i say they would make they would make the scousers and the brummies and that look like nout, you know and um, yeah, there were just there was just some very 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 tasty characters in that town, and there still is now. I mean, you know, you get a lot of murders, and there's, it's, you know, Marbella is the the center of drug importation in Europe. You know what I mean? And um, you know, it's, and and along with that comes some very very scary
1: characters. But they kick off from time to time with the fights. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it was. But again, it was the thing about it is it, it's. I would say there's nothing that memorable about it because it was it was all very very easily handled, you know. Like I say, a lot of the things that I've talked about have been fucking nights where I've been scared shitless because ba- bad things have happened. So obviously, you know, you're getting your kickoffs, but you've got 12 solid doormen, and the kickoffs are normally a group of three or four or five drunken tourists, you know. So we're swarming we're swarming, grab them, split them up, throw them out. End of story. You know what I mean, but like I say, it was it was the things that didn't happen were most. Oh, you know, it was the, you know, I mean, there was, there was, you know, there was an occasion where someone let off a gun inside a Liniker's, but I wasn't there at the time. But it was like on a Tuesday night or something like that. And but again, that was like probably one of the local scumbag drug dealers, and um, you know, there was just there was a lot of money. There was, you know, it's like anything, you know, if you if you go to anywhere in the world where there is people with lots of money, there's two things you'll find. Drugs and hookahs. Yeah. And that's what Marbella is full of. It's just, you can't throw a stone without hitting a drug dealer or a prostitute. That's it. And the thing is, right, the thing about Marbella is from the outside looking in, right, you know, you've got the programs on the telly and the you know, no carbs before mobs and all of that. And them Essex fucking pricks are, you know, going over there all the time and whatever, right? And you know, all you see is the Lamborghinis and the Bentleys and the yachts in the harbour, and everyone's at the at the beach parties, sipping champagne, and you know the spray parties and all of that. And everyone's like, "Oh, that's so sophisticated." But when you're in the inside looking out, it's just coke dealers and whores, that and gangsters, and it's just it's it's not a very nice place to be honest with you. But like I say, you know, we had such a firm crew that summer that the you know Linickers was the banging mate. It was absolutely banging, and just you know we all stuck together. We all went out together, and it was just it was one of the best summers of my life. You know what I mean? What was the art scam? So this was so the art scam. Now, so like I said to you, you know, a lot of what I'm about to say about you know these jobs that I've had was a direct result of my addiction, right? So. Ah, like I say, I'm not a criminal, right? I'm again. I'm, I lived a life full of fear. Yeah, I was never, like I say, my, I've got mates who are criminals. They, they do proper crime and go to jail. And like these are the people that you that you normally have on here. I'm just this normal fella that likes to drink and take drugs. So in order to facilitate that, I've got to do things which will fund that lifestyle. So one of them was I ended up, I fell into a, a career for want of a better word. Of uh, of telephone fraud, yeah. So um you know, like you became a stockbroker, right? I also became a stockbroker, but the stuff that I was selling was obviously a lot worse than the stuff that you were selling.
1: But, oh, so this is the boiler room scam. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what you said when you said boiler room earlier. I thought, what do you mean boiler room?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, You've, seen, you've seen the film Boiler Room? Yeah, that's you know, it's what it is. Is you're ringing people up and you're selling them an investment. Yeah, and sometimes the investment isn't as good as you may well make it out on the phone. So the art scam was like, you know, there was, I got, uh, I met this fella and he had a sales room going. And the idea was is that, you know, I've started thinking, all right, well, there's, you know, what they're going to be doing is they're going to be, you know, know, increasing the profit margins. Yeah. And I thought, you know, so you're basically, what you're doing is you're ringing these people up going, you normally invest in the stock market. A lot of people are diversifying into the art market. You know, you hear about that painting that got sold at Sotheby's last week for £50 million. Yeah, the profit margin. And and then you say, well, look, we've got these paintings. You buy it and it'll go up in value. That's the basic principle. And, and you know, you, you cold call enough people. Eventually someone says yes. What I didn't actually realise is, is that the paintings that you were selling were fucking worth nought. Yeah. So you're, selling, you're saying to these people, oh, these are worth five grand and, and they're going to go up in value. So they'd send you the five grand and you would get you know i was working for the firm i'd get me 20 percent commission or whatever and um and and you know eventually when it all goes pop like because eventually someone's going to ring you back and go i need to sell me investment and you go all right I'll, I'll come back to you about that you know so it lasts a year or two years or whatever and then they find when they try and sell what they've bought they find out it's worth fucking 50 quid or whatever you know what i mean but then they added another layer to it so the the next layer was instead of just buying the painting and then it goes up in value and you sell it, like the basic principle of an investment, instead of you keeping the painting at home, what they would do is they would say, oh, we're going to rent it out for you. So what would happen is they'd say, right, you know when you go into a bank and you see a picture on the wall? Yeah, they don't own those pictures. They rent them from companies like us. So what will happen is you buy the picture, we'll rent it out, and we'll pay you rent for your picture, right? And they go, oh, that's, so it's a plausible idea. So what would happen is, say it's five grand, right? They would send you five grand, right? You'd buy the picture for 50 quid, right? And then you'd then send them back a check for 500 quid, the 10% rent. So you'd now have £4,450 of their money. I mean, I'm saying you, I'm talking about the, the company, yeah? And then, and so, you, you know, you pay the salesman the commission, whoever owns the company's got all that done, right? And... So, it's quite an easy sell. I guarantee you 10% a year on your investment. What you get in the bank, 1%, da 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 da, bump. So, yeah. So, what had happened is they'd send you the money, you'd send them back the check for the rent, and then you'd ring them up and you'd be like, Did you get your rental check? And they go, Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. And you go, it's Brilliant, isn't it? And they go, Yeah. And you go, Do you want to buy another one? And like there was people going like 40, 60 grand deep in it and stuff like, and it was just, I mean, you know, and they're buying fresh air basically, you know what I mean? And you know, now, now I'm clean and sober, and you know I've got a moral compass, and you know I'm living at, you know, now I, you know, now I, you know, I, you know, I work in recruitment, and I've got a, you know, I'm like a normal, you know, law abiding citizen, and da Now obviously I, you know, and I'm, you know, part of the part of the pro part of the program of of NENA is about making an amends. You know, I, there's no way I can physically make an amends to all of the people that I made those phone calls to. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm talking like I did hundreds and hundreds of sales over a period of many, many years, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't always just that, you know, so like art, and then it was gold coins and wine and, you know, all of these, you know, tangible asset investments. And then, you know, we start doing stocks on the NASDAQ, and, um, and then, you know, then I graduated to the firm. Which is uh, in Indonesia. So, um, if you, what people don't understand is, is that there is a an un, like a subculture, an underground subculture of people that do this job, right? And we all know each other, right? Mm. Because the thing about it is, right, is. The way I was living my life is I was I was just an alcoholic junkie that, you know, that was unreliable to turn up to work on time, right? And so getting a job in a normal company for a normal person was alien. Because the problem was is, you know, for the first couple of months you'd hold it together and eventually it would start slipping. And then, you know, after three, six months you'd get the sack because you were unreliable, right? Whereas you can't get sacked from being a criminal, right? So you get a lot of people who are, who have alcohol and substance abuse problems, but who have got a brain and can sell, gravitate towards that kind of job. So when you go and you start work in these kind of places, you're working with some of the biggest crazy fuck ups walking the planet, but they're all smart. You know, it's like you can't do that job if you're stupid. You've got to be you've got to be intelligent to do that job. You to close a deal whether you're selling a legitimate product or a moody product in order to get someone on the phone that you've never met and persuade them to part with 10 grand of the hard-earned money for a, a, a for an invisible product is a fucking skill that not many people can do. And so because the the the, the potential profits and benefits from this type of job are quite high, so me, as an individual, I can go and start work at this company and within a couple of weeks, I'm making a grand, two grand a week, right? And I've got an alcohol and a drug habit, right? But like I say, you know, everyone has. It's just taken taken as read, yeah, that everyone's got a drug habit, right? And so, you know, you go to Marbella and there's like hundreds of these places in Marbella. They changed the law. What happened was is, the reason people were doing it in Marbella was, Mar- like, Spain had a rule about telephone sales, about cold calling, and they had no such repercussions with the FSA or anything like that. So, basically, Marbella was a, was a haven. This is like, you know, back in the early 2000s and the late 90s, early 2000s, it was, it was a haven for these boiler room telephone scams because, basically, you could go and set up in Marbella, and you were, even if you got caught, nothing would happen. You just get shut down. So, what happens is these companies, they do what's called a VC, which is a virtual company. So, what happens is you've got ABC Stockbroken Limited, right? You're ringing people up, ABC Stockbroken Limited, blah, 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 blah. You know, you do all these deals. Eventually, it all comes crashing down. The bank, you know, eventually the bank accounts will get closed and da, 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 da. da. And then the following day, you go into work and instead of ABC Stockbroken, you're XYZ Stockbroken. And it just changes the company name and you just carry on doing it like that, right? So I'd seen this in Marbia, right? And it was, you know, it was a, you know, there was some fairly decent sized operations. But most of them were just doing like pre-IPOs um from like shitty companies in England or, you know, um um reg S stock on the Nasdaq. Um, you know, like dog shit stocks, yeah. And can't sell for 12 months and da, da 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 Right. So I was like, all oh, right, yeah, that's like, you know. Uh, that's the beat and obviously you know the. I've seen the film Boiler Room a million times, and I've seen the film Wall Street a million times, and it's like you know we're fucking thinking we're Gordon Gecko walking to work in my beer <laughs> and all that. Was, I mean, we were just fucking algae pricks, you know what I mean? Like that's what we were. And um, anyway, so like I say, there's this subculture, right? Like that people don't realise exists, right? There's an entire industry based upon fraudulent stock market investment. Right now, if you go and pick up the Evening Standard, or you know, if you go into any major city in the in the world and pick up the English speaking newspaper, right, somewhere in that newspaper will be a little box advert like that, and it'll just say "telesales wanted," ring this number. That's a boiler room, bruv. Right, guaranteed. Right, and so y- you need a job, and like more a lot of them. If you're in England and you ring these up. Now they're all in Southeast Asia or whatever. And, you know, what they do is they'll pay for your flight, they'll pay for your accommodation, and they'll give you a little bung when you get there, like they'll give you $200 a week just so you can feed yourself until you start making commission. So if you're a fucking alky-junky, waster fucking dickhead, right, who's quite good at sales, and, you, you know, you've just been sacked from a job in England and you ring the number and they go, right, can you be at the airport tomorrow? We'll fly you out. We'll give you somewhere to live and we'll give you some money. And you're like, what, in Southeast Asia where there's booze and hookahs? I'm, I'm fucking there, bro. Right? <laughs> and so I've been to a few of them. Like I've been in Thailand. I've been in the Philippines. and But the, the one, right, the one that topped them all was in Indonesia. Right? So I've rang up the, um, I've rang up the number and the guys answered the phone. And he's like, right, you know, have you ever done this kind of job before? I'm like, yeah, of course I've been in my Da-da-da. And he's like, right, you're just the kind of person we're looking for. When can you come? I'm like, right, next week, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And so I have um got so basically, you know, it's all I've got the job. Next thing I know, I've we'll got emailed the ticket, Emirates Airlines, flying to Jakarta and it goes, right, when you land, they send you a thing, they said, right, when you land, you're gonna get picked up at the airport. Um, this is what's gonna happen. And And we'll take you to the apartment. We'll give you an apartment. We'll give you $200 when you land. And then you start work the next day. And you're like, brilliant. That's fucking awesome. And so I've got the plane. We've landed at Jakarta. And there's when the plane door opens, right? And there's a dude stood there at the plane door. Not like after the customs. Like at the plane door, he's got a list with your name on. And you're like... The plane door. The <laughs> fuck? How can you get it? So you're like, all right, I'm Andy. And he's like, right, yeah, come with me. So there's like, say there's five of us on the plane, right? And he takes you, like he walks you off the plane, like off the the skywalk thing, takes you to like a little corner and he goes, right, give us your passport. And I'm like, this sounds a bit fucking dodgy, but I'm still in the air. And he's like, passport. So like all five of us were handed my passports over. And I've seen him like this and he's just taking a hundred dollar bill out of his pocket, slipped it into the top passport, and he's gone, follow me. And we've just walked up to the diplomatic counter, right, at Jakarta Airport. (laughs) And he's fucking put the passports on the counter, like that, right? And the bloke, and he's like, wink, wink. And the bloke's took the fucking passports, opened it up, took the $100, put it in his back pocket, and just gone, (laughs) handed the passports back. He didn't even fucking look at them, right? (laughs) And I'm like, "What the? F- who the fuck are we working for?" that, <laughs> right? And so we've, you know, we've, um, so we've, um, we've gone, you know, we've. There's a car outside, and like, so we've walked down the diplomatic queue, like all of the Indonesians, the people that have got Indonesian passports, are all queuing at the fucking counter, and we're just like. I'm in like that. I'm like, and then we've got to the customs, right? And they've got these x ray machines. You've got to x ray your bag on the way out of the airport. And the bloke's gone, just walk around that. And we've, like, the customs have just gone. And I was like, I wish I had an ounce of coke on my arse. You know, the customs have just gone fucking like that. We've walked out, got in a car, and they've taken us to this fucking, like, block of apartments. And they went, right. Monday morning, nine o'clock, or like not like no, sorry, they were like twelve o'clock Monday, be outside, the car will come and pick you up, right? And then, you know, so we go, you know, so you, you go to start work, and it's basically you go in this room and there's like 30 booths, right? So it's like it's like a cabin and it's like a like a like a, a stand-up desk, right? So there's like the chairs are like bar stools and the desk is this, and there's a cork board on the booth, right? So you've got your script all pinned to the cork board and they're like, do not deviate from the script, yeah? You ring that number, you say those words and then eventually you're going to do a deal and you're like, okay. And, um, and so you start work and um, and obviously, you know, the, the 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 attrition rate is massive. You know, very quickly people drop off and go home. Yeah, and there's like people that land... And, you know, and they, obviously you get people that land there and, like, the kids, like, we're, we're doing the training bit and the kids, like, so we're learning how to sell these shares. We were, like, selling Baidu, like the Chinese Google. Obviously, it's fucking fresh air, bruv. We ain't selling shares. It's fake. It's all fake. And, um, and you know, so I'm like, and the kids turn around to me and he's going, Andy, he's going, do you think these people really get the shares? And I'm like, bruv, are you on the same planet as me? Like, no, nah, mate, that shit ain't happening. And so, you know, very we start on the phone and what have you, and, and you're cold calling business owners from, like, you can't call America, you can't call England. Basically, anywhere that's got a real, like, anywhere that's got a government that will come after you. If you, f- if you fuck over some of their citizens, like, the Yanks will come after you, the British will come after you, and there's other countries that will come after you. The Safars, yeah, they won't come after you. The Belgians, they won't come after you. Yeah, like, so you were cold calling s- certain countries and you're cold calling business owners in these countries. And it was a one call close, right? This wasn't i I'm going to send you some information and call you back next week. This is, this is what we're doing. Are you doing it or not, right? Because what you're doing is you're bottom feeding. You're looking for fucking mugs, right? You're looking for a geezer that's prepared to take a 10 grand punt on the back of a phone call, right? That is a mug punter. Right? And that's what they're looking for. They're not looking for people that will go on the internet and check it out. They're not looking for people that will do research. They're looking for people that will take a gamble and a punt on a phone call. Right, So that you've got 30 geezers in these booths, fucking hammering. Then you find out they've got five of these rooms. Right, So there's 150 geezers in Jakarta in these different rooms, all smashing the phones like fucking hamsters on a wheel. Right? And then eventually they start dropping, you know, like the, like each room with 30 people in, they'll probably only drop three, four, five deals a day. We're not talking like no one's doing millions of deals, but like it's what they're they're looking for a specific demographic. They're looking for a fucking idiot that'll take a punt on the back of a phone call, right? So what happens is your job is to get him to say yes. And as soon as you've got him to say yes, you pass the phone over to the manager. The manager takes the phone. And he confirms the deal. You said yes. You want to do this? Yes, yes, yes. Paperwork's in the post. Boom. You never speak to that guy ever again. That's your job done.
1: How did you create urgency to get them to say yes?
0: Well, it's about, you know, this is, it. it's, it's about, you know, the stock's going to go up, isn't it? So you're ringing them up and you're going, look, and you're talking about real companies. So you're going, look, this is the Chinese Baidu. It's currently at $20 a share. You know, we we expect it to go to $40 a share within the next few months. The time is now. Strike really the is is hot. Boom, 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 boom. And it's about being able to build that relationship and build that rapport and get them. And it, it, it's, not, it's, it's not necessarily about urgency. It's more about persistence overcomes resistance and it's about getting them to punt. So what you say is you get to the end of the conversation. You say, look, man, just have a go. Let me prove myself to you on this one phone call. And then once I prove myself to you, then we can do bigger business in the future. But look, this is what I've come to you at the right time with the right product. Like, if you say to me, call me back next week, it's going to be the wrong time with the wrong product. This is the time to do it right now. Have a go. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. 10 grand. Let's go. Come, boom, 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 boom. Triggering right. the greed. Exactly. So you get them to say yes, The go, go over, right? So you get, you get like, what was it? I think you got like 15% on your opens, but then you got 7% on your loads. So what would happen is that ticket would go to the driver, right? The driver's job is to get you to go to the bank and pay for the deal that you've just done. So the driver's like, right, go to the bank, send the, send the bank wire transfer to this fucking account, da-da-da-da-da. The guy sends the money. The money lands in the account. You come in like on a Friday, all the deals that you've done, you walk in and there's a pile of cash on your desk. Whatever, you, whatever. So, so it's a 10 grand deal. You get 15%, you get $1,500 for every deal that you do. So you've done two deals that week that have cleared. You got three grand on your desk on a Friday afternoon, right? That ticket then goes to the loader. Now, the loader's job is to squeeze them for everything they've fucking got, right? So this is, like I say, this is a a secret room with secret people in that you're never going to meet in a different apartment block from where you live. You know, this is, like I say, so you've got these 150 geezers, like the hamsters on the phone, producing these tickets, right? Making 10 grand a pop. It's fuck all to them. That's nothing, right? That be- that probably doesn't even pay for the apartments that these geezers live in. But then the loader starts squeezing. There was a Lithuanian fella, right? This this like it was always the new kids as well. It used to fuck me off, right? I've been doing this job for years and I've never had it happen to me, right? But there was people doing million-dollar loads, right? And so you're getting a 7% turn on your, on your load. So you're getting a 70 grand commission in cash, right? And this kid. This kid joined the firm, right? He'd never done the job before in his life. Second phone call he made, he closed this Lithuanian fella for for 10 grand. And within two months, that geezer had loaded for four million dollars. So four times he's gone into work and there's 70 grand on his desk. And he's just like, It's fucking easy, this job. I'm like, You're a fucking prick, mate. That's never happened to me.
1: You know? So if you've opened an account. And it goes to the loader. If the loader closes a deal, do you get a kick? You down. get 7%, yeah. So you get
0: 15% on your open and 7% on your load. So whatever, if the guy does a 100 grand deal, you get 7 grand, right? Wow. And so, you know, there was a few loads going in, you know, you know, 20 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand. And then occasionally what would happen is you'd just hear the manager go, Rah! like that. And he'd fucking come and write it up on the board. Someone had had a big ticket load come in. And um, it was just fucking... So, But this is the savage thing about it, right? So you've got your VC, you've got your virtual ABC stock broken. They're selling the stock. So you, sell, you open the guy up for 10 grand, the loader calls him up and takes him for everything he's got, right? Eventually, that geezer is going to realize that he's been had, right? So one day, he's going to need that money back and he's going to ring up and go, I want to sell me shares. And they go, uh... And then, obviously, he complains and da-da-da-da-da, and then eventually the VC goes pop, and you come in the next day, and it's a different VC, right? So, this geezer, whether he's done 10 grand, 20 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, a $1 million dollars, whatever, this geezer's been had. He's been sold fresh air. doesn't exist, yeah? Taken to the cleaners, right? So, he's you know, he's sat at home, and he's licking his wounds. Then you've got something which is the dirtiest thing on the planet. Not the recoverer. The slop load, right? It's the Basically, what you. That's what happens is someone then rings him up and goes, all right, Mr. Smith, you just lost 200 grand on this fucking stock scam, didn't you? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, we're a, we're a firm of lawyers and we're going to get your money back. And the, he goes, oh, brilliant. And they go, what you need to do is just send us 15 grand for the legal fees and we'll get your 200 grand back. And he goes, okay. Fires up the 15 grand. And then the next week, they ring them up and go, you know, when you made your purchase, did you pay the taxes? You've got to pay the taxes to get your money back. So we need another 40 grand to get you. And they just fucking, and, and they just fucking squeeze and squeeze and squeeze. Wow. And take, And I'm like, this was a billion dollar company, right? And the, like I say, this was, I've got off the fucking plane and the guy's waiting at the plane door with my name. Took me through the diplomatic counter, boom, boom, boom. First day you go in, this is the head of security for the company. And even now, 10 years down the line, I ain't gonna fucking say his name, right? He was the ex-head of Jakarta police. And all of, they had a security team work for the company, they were all carrying guns, right? And basically, when you landed, they were like, right, if you get take if you get caught taking drugs, you're on your fucking Death own. Death penalty, isn't it? You're on your own. Mate of mine got caught with a bag of weed out there ended up doing seven months in an Indonesian prison for a twenty
1: dollar bag of weed. And right? I've watched a Bangla abroad episode about those Indonesian prisons.
0: So they basically said like if you do anything, we, like the security team will get you out of it. Like if you get caught shoplifting or fucking whatever, you know, like they'll get you off. And even to the fucking point where if someone started a fight with you and you ended up hitting them and he banged his head and you killed him, you'd be on the next plane home. You would never face a charge in Indonesia. As long as you weren't a Basically, as long as you weren't a horrible person, right? And um, I blank that out. And um, and he, um, and but if you got caught taking drugs, you what you like that was the that was the, that was the no no, right? And um, basically, so when you you join the geezers, like I'm the head of security for the company. This is my phone number. If you get into any trouble at all at any point in time, you call this number. And we're like, okay. I never had to use it, right? It was one of the lads was coming home one night, three in the morning, pissed out his nut. Taxi's being pulled over by a copper on the take, right? Copper's looking for a bribe. He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, da-da-da-da-da. And, he, and like the copper's like, yeah, you need, fine, fine, fine. The copper just wanted a bung, didn't he? And my mate's gone, wait there. Yeah, I've got this I was trying to squeeze us for some dough. He went, put him on the phone. And he handed the phone over and the copper just went, Apparently went white and handed the phone back and went on your way. And that was the security team of the company, <laughs> right? So every day, so you were, you, everyone was living in a, in a company-owned apartment in this block, right? So there was a shopping mall. It was called Tamanangrek, right? And above the shopping mall, there was eight tower blocks of apartments. It was fucking huge, right? And um, it was well-known because obviously the turnover of staff and there's 150 guys living there and, it was like, you know, if 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 people found out you lived in Tamanangrek, they knew you were fucking dodgy, right? And um and and it was just, you know, there it there was a va- you know, there was people like me that had been doing the job and, you know, they knew what they were doing and they were you know, I was just there to get pissed and shag birds and have a laugh, right? And there was, you know, most people were just, you know. They all had their issues, like I say, most of them were you know alcohol, drug-related, whatever, but most people were fairly smart and they were there for a good time not to spoil it. But there were some fucking nut jobs who were out there. and um, and one of these nut jobs happened to be sharing an apartment with one of my mates, and um, it was this lad from Manchester, big lump, ex-army, and you know, not the kind of lad that'll take some shit. And anyway, he's gone out for a date with some chick one night and he's come back and this nut job that he's sharing the gaff with has been on the, been on the, on the fucking meth. And um, he's got some hookah tied up in his room. Whoa. And he's got a knife to the bird's throat and that. So like my mates come in and he's like, eh, and there's a noise coming from the room. He's like, what the fuck's that? And he's opened the door and mate, he's got this hookah tied up on the bed with a knife to her throat. And he's just steamed and uh, cracked this geezer. Cracked him so hard, he's broken one of the bones in his hand, right? Knocked him clean out, right? And he's rang the, the security <laughs> team for the company. And like, oh, shit. Like the, the security team turned up, and um, yeah, they pistol-whipped all this geezer's teeth out, and put him in the back of the van, and dumped him outside of Jakarta Airport, and was like, that don't come back. And um, that happened to a few people. Basically, it was like, if you got caught with gear... But the ironic thing was, there was a place which the rumour was the company owned. So when you got there, you were given a list of rules. And it was like, don't do drugs. And then the second one was, do not go to stadium. Right? Stadium was a nightclub. Now, knowing your history about raves, this was like, this would have been right up your strata, right? <laughs> it was, I'm not a big nightclub guy, right? Never have been. I'm a bar fly, I used to stand at the end of the bar and hold court with my mates, drink and sniff, and you know, that was my that was my little domain. However, this was one of the greatest nightclubs you've ever been to in your life. It used to open on a Thursday night and close on a Monday morning, right? And it was seven floors, and it had like a karaoke bar, had a restaurant, it had a thing, and the top two floors was just the greatest nightclub you've ever been to in your life. The music was like banging house music, it was just happy, really uplifting music, and they were just openly selling ease, like openly, openly just selling ease in this club. So, like you know, for the fact that you know Indonesia is totally anti-drugs and whatever, the fact there's just an open pill market going on in the middle of the city was just baffling. And um, so you go in, you know, you go in the club like that, and you go upstairs, and you like the door, like you go in the lift, and the lift doors open. And you're just in this club. And like so there's blokes, dudes. As soon as you walk in Indonesian dudes who just got bags of pills, they're just like, Do you want a pill? Do you want a pill? And I mean, they were they were $30 each, right? I mean, bearing in mind, I was buying these in England for a quid, right? But these ones were like ease from the 90s. You could only take one and that was it. You were blowing your hat off. And um and yeah, so we'd go down there, we'd get like bang one of these wicked pills, we'd be dancing all night. And there was just loads of hookahs walking around the club and they'd just come up and go, do you want to come? And like, they'd just take you up to a little room up there and do whatever you wanted and that. And you were just, it was just the greatest nightclub ever. And the, and the word on the street was that the firm owned it.
1: <laughs> I was like, about to
0: say that. <laughs> they, this, Like I say, so the firm owned all of these apartments that you lived in. I mean, like the the, the word on the street was that they they took all the profits that they made from this, elite, like from this stock scam and they plowed it into massive real estate and, and they owned half of Jakarta. Wow. And, um... And yeah, and, and so, but everywhere you went, you were basically under surveillance. So every day when you went out to work, the, the, the cleaners would come in and clean your apartment, but obviously the security team would come in and look through all your shit to make sure that you weren't stashing gear, like under your mattress and through your drawers and whatever, make sure you weren't buying gear and everything like that. And um, you, know, you just knew it. But as long as you weren't breaking the rules, it didn't, who gave a fuck? You know, we were out there, we had a free apartment, we were out in a piss and, you know... And it was just we. It was such a good time, and um. And then there was one night we were down. So in Jakarta, there's a place called Block M, which is where all the bars are. Basically, right? It's like if you want to go and pick up a, pick up some uh, company for the evening, this is where you go and do it. And there's all these bars, and like in Thailand, I don't know if you've ever been to Thailand before, but Thailand's like very in your face, right? Bars everywhere and they're on the street. Hello, Mr. Very handsome man. Come with me. It's not like that in Indonesia. It's a Muslim country. So it's all behind closed doors and it's all very hush hush. So you go down Block M. And so there was there was a group of us. We were in Block M one night and we were just in this one bar and we, we had a few drinks and we were like, right, let's go to the bar over the road. And it just, I I was like leading the charge to go to the other bar. And I've walked out of this one bar and there's a guy stood there having an argument with his missus. And for whatever reason, he's decided that he's going to take it out on the next person he sees. And that happened to be me, right? And so he's like, I've, I'm have i like, eh. next thing there's this American fella, like older fella, like in a wife-beater vest and a pair of shorts and all that, pushes me and puts his fists up and like starts walking towards us. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Yeah, like, so I've stepped back and I've cocked my right hand and I'm like, right, I was like, I'm going to have to spark this geezer like that. So I've put my hand up like that and I'm and he's walking away. I went, listen, mate, what are you doing, man? Like, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? And he's like, and he's just being a dickhead, right? And like, obviously all the lads are like looking at me and I'm stood there thinking, fuck, I'm like, I'm, and obviously I know, you know, I know what happens to other people that break the rules. And I'm just thinking, I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be doing this. And I'm trying to avoid this conflict at all costs. And he's walking towards me and he's walking towards me and he's walking towards me. And it's getting to the point where I'm thinking I'm going to have to fucking ping this geezer. And I'm just like that. And as I'm like that, just two of the doorman from the bar, just grab this geezer, throw him on the, throw him into the gutter and just start fucking stamping up and down on him. And they just look up to us and they go, it's Okay. We know who you are. You are free to go. <laughs> and I'm like, obviously, a big group of white dudes in this bar in Indonesia, like young lads all on the piss, they know, they know who we work for. And all the doormen are on retainers to watch our backs when we're out there. And um, yeah, like I say, wow. I thought I was about to get into a tussle with this fella. And next thing, these doormen are just weighing them in, mate. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, was, it was just, it was bizarre. It was bizarre, and and yeah, I mean, like even things like they controlled everything. Like you were, it was like living in a, it was like living in the Truman Show. You know what I mean? You are in this fishbowl, and you are you, everything you did was controlled. They picked you up, they dropped you off, they fed you, they gave you money. the you were living in their gaff, you were being watched all the time, you know. But. It was still fun. You're in Southeast Asia. You're on the pace. You 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 know. You you you're with women, and you know it's women and drink, women and drink, women and drink. And it, you know everyone had a good time. And but it was even like, you know, they um. There was some kid I never met him who apparently got on the got on the meth, got on the pipe, and he's ranging Basically, he's rang in sick to work one day. And you didn't do that. You you d- didn't go sick from this company. And he said i'm not coming in so anyway the next thing the security team have opened his door and he's sat on the sofa with a pipe like on the on the on the crystal meth and yeah again security team hide him in the back of a van pistol whipped all his teeth out and dropped him at the airport and that and um there was one geezer who um he'd been there for a while he'd got some bird pregnant or something like that and again he was a nut job and he'd He'd had a row with this bird and um, he'd slapped this bird in the middle of Block M. And obviously everyone, like she was a local hooker, pregnant with his baby, apparently. And then he slapped her and obviously all the, all the naughty fellas who worked there were going to come after him. So he's then stolen a taxi, jumped in a taxi, robbed this taxi and like driven back to the apartment. And by the time he got back to the apartment, the security team were waiting for him. And yeah, he got, he got waiting in the van on the, back, on the way back to the airport. And um, yeah, it was just you know, it was it was just one of them things, you know, like the, the, you know breaking a rule. We went to stadium, obviously, but it was one of those rules where as long as you didn't take the piss, you were all right. But yeah, if you got caught doing meth or anything like that, man, you were going to get your teeth smashed out in the back of a van. What did the security team guys look like? Tiny little Indonesian fellas, like you, like in a fist fight, like wouldn't say a boot to a goose. But they all they
1: were all strapped, all of them. Now, that is organised crime. And yep. in these countries where it's the death penalty, you've got to be connected to the government to sell drugs. And usually it's the government running the drugs. Chief uh, of police, mean, did you say?
0: Yeah, well, like I say, so it was the ex-head of Jakarta police, was the head of security. Of, yeah. It was the ex, was, ex-head of Jakarta police, was the head of security for the firm. Yeah, got all the right, right um, government. And yeah, I mean, obviously, so there was just, like I say, the first thing I saw when I landed was a backhander getting to the passport fella. So there was just backhanders obviously going out left, right and centre. Everyone was on a payroll and everyone was that. And it was, you know, and like I say, you went you went out there, you know, you, you did your job, you got paid, you went out and got pissed at the weekend. You know, you pulled some women, you had a good time. You know, you're in Southeast Asia, you're having a blast with your mates. But there was some people out there that took the piss. And when the, if you took the piss, you you paid the price. You know what I mean? So what happened in the Philippines? Well, the Philippines was like the, so this was after Jakarta. So I'd been to Jakarta, and then when I went to the Philippines, I thought it was going to be the same thing, but it wasn't. It was like it was like Jakarta's poor stepbrother, you know. <laughs> so they've flown me out there. They've given us a gaff. Is, like... is it the firm? That's... No, no, no. Oh. So this is I, I. So I suppose I got spoiled, really. So I've been out of Jakarta and I've worked for the firm. This big group of organized crime that do this thing and that. And like you say, you get your house, you get your food, you get your fucking money, you get picked up and dropped off and everything. And then I've got to the Philippines thinking it was going to be similar. And it, you know, it was just a sales job that happened to, you know, they gave you gaff and whatever. And like, so the first month I was there, I, I joined the boxing gym and I was training every day and I'd lost a load of weight and everything like that. And then, um, and then it was after I'd been there for about a month. My mate come and he went, do you want to have a go on that crystal meth? And I was like that. Ah, fuck it. Why not? You know, so obviously by, by this point, I you know, I'd done crack a load of times and what have you. And I was still drinking and using. And but again, I've got to say, right. You know, I am. I class myself as an addict. Right. I'll take anything. Right. But alcohol is my first love. And that was it. Like, I never dry used, you know. I would never take Coke or I would never smoke crack or I would never do crystal meth if alcohol hadn't been involved first. So I was just an alcoholic who took drugs. I wasn't a major drug addict, right? So, you know, I say first, whatever, I've been, you know, been training hard, you know, doing okay at work and that. And then my mate was like, oh, do you want to try this? And it like, you know, that's quite Moorish, that crystal meth. I mean, reading your book, you used to sniff it, didn't you?
1: Yeah, and it would last for days because, like, with caught you've got to do a line every so many hours or But well, didn't it
0: burn the fuck out your nose, bro? Yeah,
1: yeah, you, have, you, like, lie back and tears run down your eyes. Like, we were just doing it, like, we'd get a light bulb and
0: would fucking get the light bulb and do it and smoke it on the Wild light bulb. Well, man,
1: you would smoke it, but you, you just burn through it all. So, if you eat it or snort it it lasts for days so yeah. oh it was horrible man I mean like they say the
0: thing about crack is you smoke the crack and then you bang a sleeping tablet and you go into bed Xanax yeah yeah but like yeah. with
1: that crystal meth like you say you're fucking not sleeping for days man Well, man I stay up for like a week on it Fuck. he'd just walk off and come back two days later with his feet all bust open
0: and it was he didn't even know where he'd been so again like the advice was when you got there they were like right don't fucking get on the meth and whatever you do don't like so like so Manila is one of the biggest cities in the world, right? There's like twenty six million people live in Manila. So Manila is is broken up into smaller sections. and these smaller sections are also called cities, right? Then like so that it's a city within a city, right? So the financial district is called Makati, and that's where the office was. and then the where we were living was a place called Global City, which is the next city over. And so you know, Makati was like the city. You know, of lo- like the equivalent of being in the city of London where the fi- like all the banks are. And then Global City was sort of the equivalent of being a canary wolf, you know, the nice posh apartments and, you know, bars and restaurants and all, perfectly safe. I don't, like in the Philippines, everybody's got a gun, right? And I mean, everybody has got a gun. It's for- to come from England, to go over there, you're like, everyone's got a fucking gun. What the fuck? <laughs> like front door McDonald's, armed guard. Front- the chemist, armed guard. You're just like, the fuck's going on here <laughs> and so they say in makati you're perfectly safe in global city you're perfectly safe don't fucking leave these places right <laughs> and there was once right There was once like me and my mate we wanted to go to this spa there was this like a uh, place where you go get like a uh, you know it was like a spa massage then it, and it was cheap as fuck and you got there was a buffet there and you could have a few drinks and but it, it was like a tenner for the a day pass you got as much food as you wanted and a massage for like 10 quid and you could go in the swimming pool. And we remember, we like, that's fucking brilliant. Where is it? Oh, it's just on the outskirts of Makati. And we were like, ah, we will be all right. It's like during the day. We're like during the day, you know? <laughs> and we were, we were fine. But like the, like the, the first time I realized how dodgy it was. We, so we got in the taxi and we went, showed him like the thing would print it off when we want to go here. And he went, okay. And we're driving and we got to the edge of Makati and the, and the, and the taxi driver just went like that. And locked all the doors, and we were like, "Ah, it's like ten o'clock in the fucking morning, bro. What you do?" And um, and yeah, and it just we went from being in the in where all the banks are and all the financial district is to being in a residential part of of, of Manila, and it was during the day. It was per, it was more or less perfectly safe. I wouldn't have got out the taxi, you know what I mean? And um, and and I was like, "All oh, right, okay, that's." And then I saw so the penny dropped about why they said don't fucking go there. So one night I'm pissed up and I'm like, right, I want to get some fucking gear. And so I've, I'm, I'm speaking to this young lady who I've met and I'm like, can you get some fucking things? And she's like, yeah, of course I can. So we've basically jumped in this taxi and she's like babbled off in, you know, Filipino to the taxi driver and the taxi's just took off. And I'm pissed out my face in the back of the taxi, like, you know, like, hey. And then before I realised, we've, we, we've pulled up at this shanty town somewhere. Like corrugated iron huts, you know, like like you know, people shitting in the street and like that, and and she's like, "Come, come on, then, let's go and see me uncle, and we'll get the fucking thing." So we've got out, we've walked down this fucking like, and I've gone to the taxi driver. I've gone, listen, don't fucking move, all right? And like, so I'm this six foot three, eighteen stone fucking white dude with a skinhead in the pitch black dark in this shanty town full of four foot eleven Filipinos like sticking out like a sore fucking thumb, trying to buy crystal meth at three in the morning. And I was just like this, I'm going to die. I was like, is this what it's come to? I'm going to die. As it turned out, we got the thing. We went home and, you know, boom, boom, boom. But, you know, it was just, I was pretty, it got to the point where I was looking around going, I'm pretty fucking scared here. And um, yeah, Philippines, man. But well, Philippines is brilliant, man. Philippines is what like Thailand was 15 years ago. It's cheap. Everyone speaks English. The food's nice. The people are nice brilliant place
1: I almost had the exact same experience with a woman taking me to a shanty town in Mexico (laughs) yeah but I survived that so you managed to get into MMA then yeah what suddenly brought you into that well so I was
0: I've always been doing martial arts since I was a kid but again I was never very good because particularly as I got older and I started drinking and using drugs you know my priorities were different so I you know I'd go to the gym and go training with the lads and they'd all go home and eat chicken breasts mm. and I'd be down the pub drinking 10 Stellas and sniffing a bag of gear and that, you know. So I was always getting injured and, and what have you. But so, um, obviously working on the door, you know, you get into a bit of conflict and you, and you get to know some people and, you know, a mate of mine was a professional kickboxer and da 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 And then this was like the early 2000s, like, to, yeah, 2000, 2001. And um I'd heard, you know, you you hear like about, you know, you mean my mate's a professional kickboxer, I've been in the same fight, and then you like I'd heard these things about this ultimate fighting, and then I was like, ooh, that sounds fucking right up my street. The more violent, the better. And um, and then I was just at a car boot sale one day, and I found these two videos at a car boot sale, were like 50 pence, and it was like I looked at them and it was like, you know, ultimate fighting, da da da. And I've gone, right, fucking yes. So I bought these two videos and I've took them home and I've watched them. And I'm like, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Two geezers locked in a cage, kicking the shit out of each other. I'm like, this is this is it. And then, then you know, very soon after that, the UFC started playing on Sky. And then um, the UFC were coming to do their first ever event in England. So it was UFC 38, Brawl at the Royal Albert Hall. And so I bought some tickets. This was like 2002, I think. Yeah, 2002. And so I've gone to there, watched that, brilliant there. I'm like, oh, and like, you know, so now I'm, again, like very addictive behavior. I'm one of them people that when I get into something, I'd fucking jump in with both feet, you know, like become obsessive with it. And so in the program at UFC, there was an advert in the back saying, train with Frank Shamrock, one of the world's best fighters. And I was like, I used to do a bit of martial arts. I'm going to fucking go and do that. So I bought a ticket for the seminar, went down there, done a bit of training, you know, and um, ended up meeting a few other people. Like you know, I met some people on the train on the way there, and got to, went you know got talking to these lads and that. And then one of them was like, "All right, there's this internet forum all about cage fighting. You want to get on it?" So I've signed up to this internet forum. And then little did I know there was a bit of an underground scene going on in the UK at the time, and it was still very very minors. And so I've started. I was working in London at the time. So I've started going to train in these different gyms in London. And obviously, I've been doing kickboxing a bit. I've done a lot of judo and karate. And then, so I'd watched these videos and seen these little, these Gracies, these little Brazilian fellas twisting people up. And this gym in London had Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So I was like, right, I'm fucking going to go and do that. So I started training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And the guy I was training with, he was like a, an MMA fighter. The coach was an MMA fighter. I started going to watch him fight. And then this, you know, at the time I was making good money in London I did, before i had my kid and that, and, you know, I had a bit of disposable income. So I was always buying. I was going to these events that were still quite minor and underground and I was buying a ringside table for me and my mates. And so obviously I'm dropping cash to these promoters and they fucking love me. Right. So I've got to know the promoters and, um, yeah, so just, and then we've got like a one I won some tickets for an event that was like on the promoter's table at this event. So I'm sitting on this promoter's table, got to know him and these other. And so I've got, basically, I've got to know all of the top promoters in the UK. And then one night we've gone to a show and obviously I'm bang on the piss, sniffed up and that, and we're, we're, like the guy on the microphone was shit, didn't know the names of the moves or anything like that. And we've gone to the after party and we're sitting at the table at the after party and I'm hey! And I went, you see that bloke there on the microphone? I said, he was fucking shit. I was like, I'd do a better job than that. And this bloke just turned around and went, really? He goes, okay, you can do my next show. And that was Dougie from Cage Warriors. And so a few weeks later, I'm uh, Cage Warriors 4 in July 2003. And I'm stood in a cage wearing a tuxedo with a microphone Shitting myself, not knowing what I'm doing. <laughs>
1: and um, Alex was the referee. Alex Reed, Alex, was ref- Reed. Alex Reed was referee. Just let me say something to the viewers. Alex Reed is presently in prison, if you didn't see the headline news. If you didn't see our previous podcast of Alex Reed, very char- charismatic man. And I'll put the link to that in the description box below the video. But we do have the exclusive when Alex gets out of prison, he is coming. Into the studio. I think it's within days of his release. We're gonna have the exclusive on Alex Reed's prison experience stories. Sound. Yeah. But yeah,
0: Alex is a top lad, man. I'm, like I say, so I've known Alex for a long time now. He's real good bloke, real nice lad. And you know, he's been through the mill, man. He's he's had some right shit things happen to him, man. He doesn't deserve a lot of the crap that he gets, man. And um, yeah, so Alex was referee. And, um, you know, there was some people that were fighting on that show. So a guy called Paul Daly was fighting on the show. And Paul Daly is one of the most prolific knockout artists in the UK. Still fighting to this day. Had a, a very lengthy career. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was, uh, you know, there was some there was some big names fighting on that show. And, um, and then, so I did that event. And then at the end of that show, some other guy came up to me and said, I've got a show in a few weeks. Do you want to come and do mine? And I was like, yeah, all right, then and it just fucking went boom and it just snowballed and then before long I'm like so this was back in the day you know there was there wasn't that many shows going on but because of that there wasn't that many MCs there was like me and this other guy from Wolverhampton and like one other guy there was like three or four of us in the UK so we were picking up jobs and we were making quite good money out of it
1: did you have the voice right away for it or did you have to cultivate the voice yeah yeah i suppose it was it just sort of came along like i say i've always done
0: sales i've been you know i've always been able to present at board level and uh, you know i've always been a confident outgoing quite you know loud fella and you know like i say the jory accent when you're down south is you know people are always like oh i love your accent and you know it's so it's always that little bit of a you know it's that little bit of a difference and yeah i suppose it took a while to you know to to come to come along and you know look I'm, you know still to this day now i don't consider myself to be a professional mc yeah I've got a day job, right? Like I work Monday to Friday, nine till five. I MC shows at the weekend. And a lot of the time I was doing it because I needed the money for to feed me habits. You know, but the thing about MMA shows is you go and do these MMA shows and there's a big party afterwards. So you go and do the event, your center of attention. You go to the after party, you get paid decent money, then you bang on the pitch. And it was, it was like a social life as well. And it got to one point where I was doing like 40, 50 shows a year. So it was like every weekend or twice a weekend sometimes. And it was just, and, you know, and then it was quite funny. So there's a mate of mine, Ricky, who's quite high up in the game now. I was double booked one night and I went, listen, I need someone to stand in for me. Come on, you do it. And he was like, oh. And so I got him into it and then he's taken it to the next level now he does it professionally as a job and he does a lot of the professional boxing and stuff like that. And he's, um, you know, I just do it as a hobby. I do it as because uh, I enjoy it. I do it for a laugh, you know, but, and then when I, particularly when I got sober, so when I got sober, I stopped begging people for work and I was more choosy about what I got involved in because I didn't need the money anymore the same way I used to need the money. And so now, you know, I've got a kid and I prefer Spending most of my weekends with me kid, rather than bitching myself off, traveling up and down the country to Doncaster and Barnsley and all of these crap holes, and you know, and then the the thing was is I'd go there, I'd do the job, and then I'd go out and get pissed afterwards, and spend all my money, and I'd wake up the next day and I'd be skint, and then I'd have to travel a four hour train journey home, hanging out my arse, and it was just you know, it, it was it wasn't. I mean, don't wrong, I've had some fantastic experiences, right? And I've been to some far-flung, wonderful places that, you know, people don't get the chance to go to. But I've also, you know, I served me time. And the reason I got to go to these places is 99% of the jobs that I did were shite. You know, like I say, going, to, you know, like little sports halls outside of Bristol. You know, like I say, you know, Doncaster. You know, like I just, oh. And it's, and, you know, it was... When I first got involved, everyone that was doing it was doing it for the love of the sport, right? And so I've got some real good mates. Like that first show that I did, there was like um, there was a lad fighting on the show called Ian Ian Butlin, right? And he's still like good mates for me to these day to this day. He's him and his brother were on that Danny Dyer's Hardest Men. They're a couple of naughty lads, like like fighting wise pre- twin twin cage fighters, yeah. Real good, solid salt of the earth, lads. You know what I mean? And, like, I'm still, and I'm still mates with a lot of the people who I met that night. And they all did it because they loved the sport and they wanted the sport to evolve. And then as the sport got bigger and bigger and bigger and there was more money involved, then it was attracting people who were doing it. Not because they loved the sport. They were doing it because they loved what the sport represented in their head. They liked the attention. You know, they like the, the, you know, the, the, you know, you know, the, you know, the glitz and the glamour that goes along with it. You know, and, and like I say, we did this because we loved the sport, you know, and other people were doing it not for the same reasons. And those people, you know, we, you know, like us old timers, we sort of look down upon those people, you know what I mean? But, you know, look, it's, you know, this sport's been great to me and I've met some really, really fantastic people. And you know it, it's given me opportunities to go places and do things that I never ever thought would be possible. And you know I love the sport of mixed martial arts. For you know as a as as a as a fan of the sport, I like watching it. But for what it does for people, and um, you know now I've got a badly injured knee, so I can't really train MMA anymore. Jiu Jitsu. I still train a bit of boxing. Yeah, and I, like I box down the local club. Whitley, I'm at a boxing club in in Redden, and you know, this is a, a local, non-for-profit, you know, boxing club. And what it does is it takes the kids off the streets and, you know, it gives them a purpose. And the guy that runs the club, Nathan, he's an ex-professional boxer from Redden. Guy's an absolute diamond of a geezer, you know what I mean? And all the coaches volunteer, like, big up to all the coaches down at Whitley Amateur Boxing Club. They all do it for free. No, that You know, they don't get paid for it. And, you know, the, so the sport of, you know, martial arts as a whole, boxing, MMA, you know, whatever it is, it's it's given me a lot and it's it's you know, and and I've also and I've seen what it's done for other people as well. And, um, and yeah, you know, it, if anyone's in the Redden area, man, you know, you could do a lot worse than, than getting your kids involved in, in, in some amateur boxing. Send us a link for that. We'll put it below the yeah, video. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of problems in Redden at the moment with kids stabbing each other and that. Problems everywhere. everywhere and it's yeah. horrible, man. It's like kids killing kids, man. And it's just, you know, like I say, this guy dedicates his life to try and give the kids something to do. And, it, you know, the geezer's a, a proper legend, man.
1: Shout out to him then. Well, most of your gigs then as an MC or a ref, and which did you prefer? Um, I preferred refereeing, yeah?
0: And I suppose it's because it was, refereeing was a bit easier than, um, well, not easier. What I'm saying is MC is all about preparation. You've got to get there early, meet the fighters, write all the information down, write your cards out, and you've got to make sure that, you know, when the camera's on, you're saying the right thing at the right time. It's preparation, preparation, preparation. Being a referee is all about reaction. Yeah. You just turn up and do your job. And I used to love refereeing. But then again, like I say, my knee went and now it's just, it. I'm not confident enough to do it anymore. Um, But yeah, I did a lot of work as a judge as well. And then, you know, so I did a lot of work with Cage Warriors as a judge. And I mean, in reality, you know, my, the level of experience that I've got, you know, I should have been working for the bigger organizations. But the problem was is, I also have a reputation of being an outspoken pisshead. You know what I mean. And um, you know, unfortunately, there's the, the bigger organisations don't like that. So, so this work took you
1: to Bahrain, Jordan, Ukraine, and Czech
0: yeah, Chechnya. So yeah, I mean, like you know, the so the, the the company there was the the Crown Prince of Jordan invested into the company. So we used to go and do events in Jordan all the time. And there was like one particular event there where. This is obviously when I was still drinking, so I've bought a bottle of vodka duty free and took it with us. And we, after we finished the we finished the event, and um, we were in the bar and the bar had shut. So I've gone and got the bottle of vodka, and I'm trying to get everyone to do shots. And and basically, I got stitched up. Right. So um, <laughs> so uh, John Kavanaugh, who's Conor McGregor's coach, right? He's like a real sound lad, right? I've known him for a long time. He was doing shots of water, and I'm doing shots of vodka. And like I got proper stitched up, and I've ended up basically drinking a liter of this blue oh. vodka and nearly dying. Right, started a fight with uh, Cathal Pendred, who was world champion at the time. Like fucking man, you did, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've I've gone like I've like I've shot across the like I mean I was pissed. I was like joking half kind of thing, but I've gone to do a takedown on him, and he's just moved out the way, and I've ended up picking this plant pot up and taking the plant pot down and that and um yeah i was i mean like but so again you know we used to go to these places but it was like you're only there for a couple of days you'd fly in you know you'd fly in you'd go to the hotel you'd sleep you'd go the next day you'd go to the venue you'd do the show you go back to the hotel you get pissed and you get up the next day and you go home you know what i mean so i've been to all of these fantastic places but um you know i've um I've not. I've only seen the inside of hotels and the inside of venues and that. But like Bahrain, I've got to make a shout out. So Bahrain, I was sharing a um, room with a lad called Neil Hall. Unfortunately, Neil uh, passed away recently uh, mm. through COVID. Mm. Um, Fifty-five years old. He was. Yeah. A, he was a very experienced referee, and he was referee refereed to the UFC. And um, yeah, Neil was an absolute legend, and um, and shared a room with him that night. And <laughs> so Neil snore. Neil used to snore real bad. And um, I was down in the bar and I met this young Australian lady and I took her back to the room. And Neil, what, there was no noise coming from Neil. So I knew he was awake, but he pretended to be asleep. <laughs> so, you know, Neil was a legend. And, um, yeah, big love for Neil, man. And like I say, massive shout out to his wife, Kath, who's just gone through a real horrific, uh, you know, uh, you know, situation recently. Um, so, yeah, big, big shame. But, yeah, you know, uh, w- you know, you make some, like I say, you make some good mates in this, in 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 the fight world. Who, you know, like I say, p- people like Neil were there for the love of the sport, man, and he was he, he'd be sadly missed. So
1: we've got U- Ukraine. Let's say Gator and his women. Let's let's rephrase. Oh, All right. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: the first, so I'd worked for Cage Warriors, but then it the, the Cage Warriors has been sold a few times, and basically this guy had bought it and he'd got this he'd got this funding and. So one like I'm at home one day and the phone's rang and it's it's Graham and he's gone Sledge he's gone do you want to come to the Ukraine and I'm like yeah all right then so um you know, two days later I'm on an aeroplane and um and I'm and I, and everyone had already got there I was I was following in I was a bit later than everyone else so we have so got to this nice hotel in the Ukraine in, in Kiev and we're all sitting in the bar having a drink now. Again, there's going to look, there's going to be a lot of people in this story are going to remain nameless. But I don't know if you've ever been to Russia, or um, you go into the, the you go into the, the bar of a hotel in, in in Russia, and there are some very friendly young ladies in these bars. And obviously, I've spent over a year in Southeast Asia, where again there's some very friendly young ladies around. So I have been in the company of the, the these type of professional young ladies. On numerous occasions whereas the people who I was with on this trip basically had never been in that situation however a lot of them were quite curious shall we say about the <laughs> benefits of meeting these young ladies mm. so like I'm sat at the table and like one of the lads has gone oh she's all right she's like oh I don't know about going to talk to her I'm like you do realize she's a fucking hooker don't you mate like that's what her job is her job's to be nice to you for money mm. and he's like oh I went wait there. I said which one that one wait here." So I've just gone. Oh, I've gone. Listen, my mate likes you. How much? You know, bum bum bum. gone back to the table. I'm going right. It's that much. He's gone right. I'm like right. Brought her over. Paired them off. He's gone off to the room. And then the next one's gone, oh, I like that one over there. I'm like, right, wait here. And then like, before you know it, I'm like 10 hookahs deep for like, all the lads. And I'm like that, I'm like, I should be getting fucking commission here. You know what I mean? And then like someone said, I was like, someone started calling me Gator. You know, of um, the Will Ferrell, where he's like Gator and his bitches. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Everyone's yeah, like, yo, yeah. Gator, the pimp. And I was like that. Yeah, I'm pimping out all these Ukrainian hookers. Oh, in and like some of them, there was a lad, he was like, he goes, he goes, do you I can take two? I went out much money you got you can take as many as you want so yeah I, like, I reckon I should have been getting commission on all these hooters in this Ukrainian hotel but
1: huge thank you Andy for like staying with us today for so many hours good job the second guest cancelled yeah is there anything you'd like to say to people watching this in conclusion maybe people who are struggling with addiction issues or young people who are going through things
0: Well, that's it mate you know like I said you look I'm just a normal geezer right I happen to have done a few you know ex, you know a few things that have led to some stories, but essentially i'm I was just a normal geezer with a you know who who was born a little bit wired up wrong and 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 when I picked up an alcoholic drink, it set my life off on a path that took me to some weird and wonderful places, some of them good, a lot of them not so good. All I'm saying to you is is if 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 you are one of those people you know you think. Oh, I'm not like that. I'm not like that, or whatever. What I'm saying is, is if you have any issues at all, you know, just go to a meeting. You know, I've not like, I, you know, you can you can send me a message on Instagram, but the only thing I'm going to reply with is go to a meeting. You know, that's where I got my that's why I got my answer. Yeah, I went to an AA meeting. I went to an NA meeting, and I got clean eventually. Yeah, and it's you know, you know, putting the drink down was the was the greatest thing that I've ever done in my life, and it's you know, it it's opened up my world. And and now I'm a, a far better person, uh, you know, for doing that. And all I'm saying is, is, you know, you don't have to be the gangster. You don't have to be the criminal. You don't have to be the big drug dealer. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have any of these weird and wonderful stories. Most of the people that I know were curtain twitchers. You know, what would happen is they'd go to the off, you know, they'd go to work, they'd finish work, they'd go to the off-license, they'd buy that drink, they'd go home and they'd sit there alone. And, you know, the, the loneliness... And, and 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 you know, that affects the mental health and and just everything about it. If you have got any problems whatsoever and you think this you know, you think that your relationship with alcohol is toxic in any way, just go to a meeting and try and do something about it. You know, they say that, you know, does your drinking cost you more than money? And that's what it did. You know, my drinking cost me, you know, respect and and jobs and relationships and, and all that kind of thing. And, and what they say is that, you know, when you come and get clean, you can get a life beyond your wildest dreams. And, you know, before I got clean, a life beyond my wildest dreams was like a lottery win and a yacht and a supermodel girlfriend. But what I'd actually turned out to be was the life beyond the life that I've got beyond my wildest dreams is getting the trust back from my family. You know, like when I was 19, my mother kicked us out of the house and took the key off us, right? Said fuck off and don't come back. Yeah, Because I was a scumbag, I was just treating the place like a hotel and she had every right to do so. And then when I was about two, two and a half years sober, three years sober, I was back, at the, I was back up the north and I was doing a job, I was MCing a show and I, and I said to her, I said, look, I says, I'm going to be back late, I'm staying at my mother's, I said, look, I'm going to be back late, um, I'm going to do a show. I said, you know, how am I going to get in the house later? And she went, all right. And she's gone to the draw. She's got a key out the drawer, and she's come back and she's handed me the key and she's, and she's gone, you can let yourself in when you come back. And I'm like, brilliant. I mean, mother's looked me in the eyes like that and she's gone, you can keep that. <laughs> and that was a life beyond my wow. wildest dreams. And that's what stopping drinking gave me. It gave me that trust and respect back of my family. And that's what I lost through all that time. So if, if you think that you've, your drinking's costing you more than money, then go to a meeting and try and do something about it.
1: So it's great to end on such a powerful note with an important life lesson uh, for people and um, hopefully inspiration if you are going through something to reach out to people who have been through things and could possibly help you. If people want to follow you online or message you online, are you on the social?
0: Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm banned from Twitter,
1: calling people the C-U-N-T. Um, I I'm on Instagram,
0: Andy.Sledge. I'm on Facebook, Andy Sledge. Um, like I say, if you're a fan of our Pet, subscribe to the podcast, our Vida Again podcast. I mean, it's a very niche market. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, like I say, you know, if you think you've, if you've got any questions, feel free to reach out. But you know, look, the, the, the answer is always going to be the same. Where I got my answer was in sitting in an AA meeting in an NA meeting, and that's where the answer lies, man. What platforms are your podcasts on? Um, basically, um, yeah, YouTube um iTunes um right so the the oil check is on iTunes and some of it's on YouTube um the 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 one now the Zane again is uh, YouTube iTunes Spotify the the full monty i use that i use that anchor fm and it just broadcasts it everywhere so
1: what's your youtube channel called then uh Zane again podcast all right if you send me all those links then i'll just put them all um below the video so if you stuck with us for the three hours tonight, thank you. Let us know in the comments what you think. Huge thank you to Joe and James coming out filming these. And huge thank you to all new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. All right, big man, give us a hug. Yeah. Cheers. One of them. Yeah, oh. yeah. you. Well pound. Yeah, absolutely brilliant.